I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you're listening to episode 63 of Mastering Nutrition. This is the recording of the live Zoom session, Ask Me Anything About Nutrition, held on March 4th, 2019, where members of the CMJ Masterpass asked me questions, and I answered them. This is Mastering Nutrition with Chris Masterjohn. Take control of your health, master the science, and apply it like a pro. Are, are, are you ready? In this episode, we talk about how much spinach, broccoli, and kale is too much. In the context of hemochromatosis and iron overload, why would ferritin be low when transferrin saturation is high? What to do when the lab says that your pyroglutamate levels are the highest that they've ever seen? Could it be a glutathione synthetase deficiency? Can you use a high GGT or gamma glutamyl transferase to indicate that the body is trying to make more glutathione? What if taking collagen at night is causing me to wake up and pee? Does high serum B12 have any relation to cancer? What does it mean when after taking a drug, histamine intolerance and blood sugar dysregulation collide? What are my thoughts on root canals? Are they intrinsically harmful or are they the way to treat a tooth that needs one? What do I think of Lane Norton's suggestion to take three grams of leucine with every meal? What do I think causes fibromyalgia? Is folate unstable in frozen liver or does it just apply to leafy greens? Are there adverse effects of taking folic acid if you have MTHFR? This leads me to go off on a big rant about the over-exaggeration of the harms of folic acid. While I do think it's important to acknowledge that folic acid is not the ideal form of folate, the, the rant I go off on in this is really important to me because the, the lack of recognition of the nutritional value of folic acid in some of the alternative health community and the over-exaggeration of the harms of folic acid are leading many people to believe that they are making good choices when they cut out white flour and when they add in vegetables. And they often don't realize that they are not getting anywhere near as much folate as before. And if they don't realize that the frozen vegetables don't have any trustable folate in them, they could be making their health significantly worse. So we need to, need to, need to acknowledge the nutritional value of folic acid, and I go on a well-deserved rant about this. What to do when the serum magnesium goes high, but the magnesium doesn't make it into the cells? We talk about polyphenols and hormesis. You may know about hormesis. Uh, you may have seen things that I've written about hormesis, but I think I put in a very... Uh, a, a very good discussion of plant polyphenols and hormesis, the principle that a little bit of something bad is good for you. I think I, I really added good context to the evolutionary heritage that shaped our detoxification system. Is it safe to take creatine when nursing? Is vitamin E supplementation harmful if you have a GSTP1 polymorphism? Could low LDL levels compromise female fertility? The answers to all these questions coming up soon, right after this word from my sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Ample. Ample is incredible. It's a meal in a bottle that takes a total of two minutes to prepare, consume, and clean up. Two minutes, I'm not kidding. 
Now, I know what you're thinking. Anything that quick just has to be made of synthetic ingredients that you'd have a hard time pronouncing and wouldn't want to put into your body. But it's not. Ample is made entirely from natural ingredients and designed to provide an optimal balance between protein, fat, and carbs, as well as all the vitamins and minerals that you'd need in a single meal. There's no question that it's always best to sit down and take your time eating a home-cooked meal from fresh ingredients. But let's face it, oftentimes we just don't have time for that. If you live a busy life like I do and your goal is to get things done, you need quality fuel that you can get into your system quickly. Here's a great example where Ample is perfect for me. When I shoot videos, it takes hours to set up and break down all of my equipment. So I try to get as many videos shot in a day as possible. This prevents wasting a lot of time on setup and helps me conserve big blocks of time outside of shooting videos to get into a flow state where I can research something to my heart's content and spend all the time I need thinking about it creatively and analytically. But if I spend hours dealing with recording equipment plus hours spent preparing food, eating it, and cleaning up, there's like no time left over to actually shoot any videos. So on recording days, I use Ample to maximize efficiency and focus on getting things done. Ample comes in three versions, original, keto, and vegan. And each version comes in two portion sizes, 400 calorie and 600 calorie. The 600 calorie original version gives me 37 grams of protein from a mix of grass-fed whey and collagen, which promotes satiety and flips my brain on. Its fat comes from coconut oil and macadamia nut oil. I like these oils because they're low in polyunsaturated fatty acids or PUFAs, oils that promote aging and are usually loaded into the processed foods that most people eat when they need something on the go. The coconut oil provides some medium chain fats to keep my energy levels up too. The carbs, the vitamins, and the minerals all come exclusively from food sources like sweet potatoes, bananas, cocoa powder, wheat, and barley grass, and chlorella. It's full of natural prebiotic fibers and probiotics to promote a healthy microbiome, and the gentle sweetness comes from a mix of honey, monk fruit, and stevia. I just mix it with water, drink it, rinse out the bottle, and boom, two minutes in, and I'm fully fueled and ready to face the next phase of the day. I first came across Ample when I met its founder and CEO, Connor Young, at PaleoFX a few years ago. Connor inspired me with his vision for Ample, which I anticipate will be much more than a meal in a bottle in the near future. I've become an official advisor to Ample, and I'll be helping Ample design scientific research that will lead both to an ever-improving Ample and, I hope, meaningful contributions to our understanding of how to use nutrition to help people be healthier and happier and perform better at the challenges that they care most about. As a listener to the Mastering Nutrition podcast, I've also worked out a special deal for you. If you use the discount code CHRIS15, you'll get 15% off your first order of Ample. To get your discount, go to amplemeal.com. That's amplemeal.com, A-M-P-L-E-M-E-A-L.com, amplemeal.com, and use the code CHRIS15 at checkout. This episode is brought to you by Ancestral Supplements. Traditional peoples, Native Americans, and early ancestral healers believed that eating the organs from a healthy animal would strengthen and support the health of the corresponding organ of the individual. For example, the traditional way of treating a person with a weak heart was to feed the person the heart of a healthy animal. Modern science makes sense of this. Heart is uniquely rich in coenzyme Q10, which supports heart health. The importance of eating organs, though, is much broader than simply matching the organ you eat to the organ you want to nourish. 
For example, natives of the Arctic had very limited access to plant foods and got their vitamin C from adrenal glands. Vitamin C is important to far more parts of your body than simply your adrenals. In his epic work, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, Weston Price recorded a story of natives who cured blindness using eyeballs, which are very rich in vitamin A. But now that we understand vitamin A, we know that we can get even more vitamin A by eating liver, making liver good for your eyes. Our ancestors made liberal use of organ meats both to be economical and to utilize their healing and nourishing properties. Animals in the wild do the same. Weston Price had also recorded a story of how the zoos in his era were capturing lions, tigers, and leopards, oh my, only to watch them become infertile in captivity. Researchers then observed what the lions did when they killed zebras in the wild. What they did was they went straight for the organs and bone marrow, leaving the muscle meat behind for the birds. But even the birds took what they could of the organs and bone marrow. Price reported that once the zookeepers started feeding the animals organ meats, boom, their fertility returned. The problem I often encounter, though, is that many people just don't like eating organ meats. Let's face it, if you weren't raised on them, it can be very hard to acquire a taste for them. That is where Ancestral comes in. Ancestral Supplements has a nose-to-tail product line of grass-fed liver, organ meats, living collagen, bone marrow, and more, all in the convenience of a gelatin capsule. For more information or to buy any of their products, go to ancestralsupplements.com. Ancestral Supplements, putting back in what the modern world has left out. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Q&A. Um, all right. So just a, a few ground rules, uh, for this, especially for people who haven't done this before. So uh, if you're on the phone, you'll probably have to tap the screen to see the options. And if you're on your computer, you might have to move your mouse to see the options. On your computer, the Q&A is on the bottom. I believe on the phone, the Q&A will be in the top right corner. If you want to ask a question, please do not use the chat to ask a question ever. Uh, please always use the Q&A if you want to ask a text question. If you want to ask a live question by either by audio or by sharing your webcam, please uh, raise your hand. If I'm answering your question, if you want to reply to someone's question and it's a text question, please use the, the reply button in the Q&A. Let me make sure that I have those options. Ah, okay. Now I have fixed the options so that you can reply to people's questions. Uh, you can ask questions anonymously. I'm going to favor questions with names just to make sure that I'm uh, not that I'm answering different people equally. If you ask multiple questions, I will only answer one of them until I've answered the other people who have asked questions. If you want to reply to someone's question. Um, Please only make replies that are valuable contributions to the to the um, to the discussion. So if you have a, an additional point or you have a thought, that's a great reason to reply. Uh, but please do not reply to people's questions, judging the value of the question. Uh, there's enough time to answer everyone's questions, and so um, I'm just going to answer them all. If uh, if I'm answering your question and you decide that you would like. Or, and I need to hear a response from you. There's two ways to respond. 
One is to use the chat if you want to do it by text. The other is maybe you decide uh, that it would actually be really helpful if you come on screen so that we can back and forth a little bit. In that case, raise your hand. Uh, so basically, the only thing we're ever using the chat for is if there is... Um, actually, no, I'm sorry. If, I'm an, if you have a text question and I answer you um, and you want to reply in text, please reply to your own comment within the Q&A. The only thing we'll use the chat for is if someone is live on screen and me and that person are talking, if you want to add something, there's no, that won't be in the Q&A for you to reply to. That's a good reason to, uh, to put something in the chat. Okay, with that, uh, I'll just start answering questions. So Doug says, do you think, oh, and by the way, uh, you'll have to excuse me for like th th 10 seconds between each question. I'll be doing some copy and pasting just to help me uh, do the, the show notes better. Okay, Doug Simpson says, do you think 227 grams of frozen spinach plus 227 grams of frozen kale plus 100 grams of cooked broccoli per day is too much. Uh, so I'm going to assume that we're measuring this before cooking um, for the frozen spinach and the frozen kale and after cooking for the cooked broccoli. In that case, the... And Doug confirms yes. So in that case you're basically getting what, so I, I would think of these as um, a few, I'd think of them as two or three servings of cruciferous vegetables. And cruciferous vegetables have an issue with potential goitrogens. At serving sizes like this, the only issue with cruciferous vegetables is that they increase your iodine requirement. In theory, if you are juicing cruciferous vegetables to have like 10 servings a day, in theory, you might get to the point where you cannot overcome the goitrogenic effect with iodine. Uh, that is based entirely on animal experiments that were done a long time ago, and we have no human data on where you cross that threshold. But in, in this case, I think two or three servings of cruciferous vegetables basically just means you need to pay a little bit more attention to your iodine status. In particular, you want to make sure that you're eating some seafood. If you're eating some seaweed in your diet, you're getting plenty of iodine in, the, in most cases. And uh, if you're not sure if you're getting enough iodine, then I would say two to 400 micrograms of iodine from a kelp powder-based supplement would be fine. Also, as a seasoning, you can get Maine Coast Sea Seasonings where you can just sprinkle seaweed onto your dishes as a flavor. It's like a salt shaker, so it's really easy to use. And uh, using that, if you don't mind the taste, is a great way to get iodine. And so I think that's the, really only the main concern there. The spinach is not a cruciferous vegetable, so it's not really contributing to this problem. It is high in oxalates, and so it has its own problem. As long as you're getting calcium with the oxalate, for most people, there are exceptions to this. But if you don't, if you don't personally have an oxalate issue, meaning a high risk of kidney stones driven by high oxalate levels in your urine, or potentially behavioral issues in children, some people are tying to oxalates. But if you don't have a specific issue with that, 
then I think that really the only issue with oxalate is you want to make sure that you're consuming calcium in the meal that you're getting it in. So the, the spinach has calcium, but it's only about 5% bioavailable. So you should basically discount the calcium in the spinach. The kale and the broccoli have bioavailable calcium. If you're mixing them together, that's probably a great way to do that. But you might not be hitting 300 milligrams of calcium in a meal. And I think if you have a lot of oxalate in a meal, you probably really want to make sure you hit 300 grams of calcium in that meal. Then the last thing is you want to be very conscious of the fact that you cannot, absolutely cannot trust frozen vegetables as a source of folate ever. And that's because folate is extremely unstable in the freezer and you have no idea how old the vegetables are. So if they were fresh frozen yesterday, they probably have plenty of folate. But if they were fresh frozen three months ago, they may seem completely fresh and yet they don't have any folate in them. So I'm not a fan of frozen vegetables mainly on the folate issue on the basis that many people believe they are, get, that are, they are getting folate from their vegetables. And if they're eating frozen vegetables, they may not be. So I, I'm very worried that there are a lot of people out there who believe that they are doing something good by cutting out refined, refined flour from their diet and, eat, and starting to eat lots of vegetables. But when they come as frozen vegetables, um, you, you may be cutting out a lot of folate from the form of synthetic folic acid added to the enriched flour that you had been eating and cut out of your diet and then not getting anything from the frozen vegetables. And that's a recipe for folate deficiency. And I know this wasn't your question, Doug, but just to riff on this a little bit, there's a lot of people out there who think folic acid is some kind of toxin. It's not a toxin. It's, uh, it's, an effect, it's effective at treating folate deficiency. It is effective at preventing neural tube defects. That's why it's added to flour. It is not the ideal form of folate. There's no question about that. Um, but this is like calcium. People saying that calcium supplements are bad. Well, not as bad as, um, not as bad as not getting any calcium. So it's the same thing with folic acid. Folic acid is not the ideal form of folate, but it's a lot better than a folate deficiency. Pamela asks on this, do cooked legumes lose folate when frozen as well? Um, I have no idea about cooked legumes, uh, but I would not trust, I wouldn't trust it. So I'm, I, uh, to be honest, I couldn't even find data on this, on the uh, dried legumes, but I would be totally stunned if folate was not extremely stable in dried legumes, just on the basis that the reactions, most chemical reactions are, are, uh, require water and almost everything that degrades spontaneously degrades way faster than water. Uh, so just based on the chemistry involved, uh, and, and I think there also all legumes are dried and have been around for a long time. So if folate was not stable in dried legumes, then the nutritional databases would show that legumes don't have any folate because they're never measured fresh. Whereas because vegetables spoil, then if you're measuring folate in, in, bro in broccoli that isn't frozen broccoli, 
then you're measuring it in fresh broccoli by definition. And so, um, and so I, I'm 99% sure that folate is extremely stable in dry legumes. Uh, I'm sure enough that I will base my actions entirely on that assumption. But if the legumes are cooked, now you've introduced water that they've absorbed. Now you've made them vulnerable to spoiling. And now you've put them in the freezer where we know that folate is not stable. For some reason, folate is stable in frozen liver. I have no idea why, but I think it's because the liver contains so many, uh, the liver is so involved in synthesis and recycling of things that it has all of the substrates that would be used for synthesis and recycling, which are the exact things that would stabilize the folate. So I think that's why liver is stable, why the folate in liver is stable in the freezer. But the legumes, you're cooking them, so you're introducing the instability. They de they're not liver, so they probably don't have those protective things. And when you cook them, you probably reduced the protective things. Folate is also stable to cooking in liver, unlike in legumes and, and greens, but the form of folate isn't. So for example, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, methyl folate will be converted to the unmethylated folate during the cooking of liver. That is not to say that it's converted to folic acid. Synthetic folic acid, that molecule is not occurring, but it is converted to tetrahydrofolate, which is the unmethylated form of folate during the cooking of liver. I imagine if you cook the liver, you depleted the protective, uh, the protective factors. And even if you cook the liver and freeze it, you're probably introducing less stability than fresh frozen liver or, or you know, taking the liver and cooking it. Uh, you're probably introducing some vulnerability there. Um, so yeah, I would not cook legumes and freeze them. I would... Uh, I mean, for the sake of efficiency, I want to believe that you can cook them and keep them in the fridge for a few days, but I, I would leave it at that. Uh, Tiana asks, what makes folate and folic acid act differently in the body? Oh, by the way, I, I'm looking at myself here and the reflection of my glasses is really annoying. I didn't have time to put my contacts in, but I'll probably put my glasses on when I read the question and take them off when I answer, just so people who are watching the video are not uh, constantly staring at the reflections of the computer screen in my eyes, which looks crazy. Okay, so uh, what makes folic acid and folate differ act differently in the body? Look, they they don't really. So I think this is um, this is a point of everything that is said bad about folic acid is is sort of true to an extent, but has been completely exaggerated in some circles. So what happens is you have an enzyme called dihydrofolate reductase or DHFR that is its purpose is not to metabolize synthetic folic acid, obviously, because that folic acid molecule doesn't exist in the food supply. Its normal purpose is that every time that you use folate to, uh, to participate in processes outside of methylation, such as DNA synthesis, you wind up producing dihydrofolate as a byproduct. 
And DHFR recycles that and turns it into tetrahydrofolate or THF. Tetrahydrofolate is what has the methyl group added to make methylfolate. So if you look at the chemical structure of folic acid and dihydrofolate and tetrahydrofolate, the only difference is that it, there are four spots that can have hydrogens added to them. And that if you li listen to the sound of tetrahydrofolate, that's tetra-4-hydrohydrogen-folate. Folate. So tetrahydrofolate has four hydrogens there. Dihydrofolate has two hydrogens there. Folic acid doesn't have any. And so the enzyme DHFR is doing exactly the same thing to folic acid that it does to dihydrofolate. It adds two hydrogens. Now you have dihydrofolate. Just as if you had put the folate through a non-methylation process like DNA synthesis. And so once you do that one time ever to a molecule of folate, now it looks exactly like the molecule of dihydrofolate that came out of the DNA synthesis as a byproduct. And it never again, ever, ever is any different than the, um, is, excuse me, it never, never, never again becomes folic acid. So from the point that dihydrofolate reductase does that one time to the synthetic folic acid molecule, which is exactly what it's doing to the normal dihydrofolate that comes out of DNA synthesis. When it does that one time, that folic acid molecule is never again, ever different from any of the folate that came in food or any of the folate that was circulating in your body naturally. And so that enzyme just has to work twice on that folic acid molecule. Does that mean that you're doubling the enzymatic requirement because you got to do it twice? The first time, yes, but no, because these molecules are recycled thousands of times per day. So if you, like, let's say you take a methylfolate supplement or you get methylfolate from your vegetables or from your liver, or from your legumes. What happens is that methyl group on the methylfolate gets used once and then that folate molecule stays in your cells for 200 days and 18,000 times a day gets the methyl group added again, right? So you're talking about the molecule that comes into your body in that instance, it has to get metabolized twice. But when you're talking about getting metabolized another 18,000 times in that day, then that, that two times you had to do it when it came in, is the math isn't that different. So does that mean that there's no, does that mean it doesn't matter that it's synthetic folic acid versus natural food folate? No, not that it doesn't matter. There are, there are, uh, there are a couple issues. So number one, we know that ever since they start, we know that before they started adding folic acid to enriched white flour, that the only people who had synthetic folic acid circulating in their blood were people who took folic acid supplements. Now that they fortify enriched white flour with synthetic folic acid, which they do to prevent neural tube defects, which it does do, uh, now that they do that, almost everyone in America has synthetic folic acid circulating in their blood. Why? Well, it's not because they are 
Well, the reason right after you consume a, p- a couple pieces of white bread, the reason right after you consume that, that you have synthetic folic acid in your blood is because you tried to, you tried to turn it into, um, you tried to turn it into uh, normal food folate, but you exceeded DHFR enzyme capacity temporarily. Now, what would happen if you never ate white bread again? Probably the next day, you wouldn't see any synthetic folic acid in your blood because the enzyme would have time to process it. But what happens is no one eats white bread once. They keep eating it. So because when you measure someone's blood who eats white bread every day, because they probably ate some white bread that morning or the day before, and the day before, and the day before, and the day before, and the day before, there's always a little bit that's not getting metabolized in that moment but it eventually gets metabolized. So the question is, does that synthetic folic acid, uh, we call that unmetabolized folic acid, does that cause harm? There are scientific hypotheses that it might, and it might, but there's no conclusive evidence of that. So that's, that's one side of the argument against synthetic folic acid. The other side of the argument is, now that you are giving the DHFR enzyme more work, that means that it might be less uh, it might have, it might, that might be detracting from the work that it has in recycling dehydro, uh, dihydrofolate that came out of the DNA synthesis reactions to make tetrahydrofolate. And so you could say if you're putting extra work on it to the point where you have unmetabolized folic acid appearing in the blood temporarily, is that detracting from the work it needs to do to recycle the folate that came out of DNA synthesis and allow you to do it again or allow you to, or allow you to put that folate into the methylation cycle? It might be. That's a reasonable hypothesis. It would be great to have some well-designed studies to test that. So because the, there's another point that Ben Lynch makes, which is that folic acid black, Folic acid blocks methylfolate from getting into cells. I'm going to have to look more closely at those studies, but I would be extremely surprised if when I get done looking at those studies, I do not conclude that folic acid didn't block methylfolate from getting in. It just outcompeted it from getting in. Why? Because it more effectively gets into the cell, and then what happens to it? It becomes dihydrofolate, tetrahydrofolate, and then it looks the same as the methylfolate molecule, um, so I'm, I doubt that argument has that much relevance. The ones that I just said, I think, are the most likely to have some relevance. Now, um, so what am I going to do? Well, I'm not paranoid about folic acid, but I, it's just obviously the not, it's not the ideal form of folate. If, if food folate and methylfolate don't have these issues, why not just use the natural folate that doesn't have these issues? The, well, there's an answer to that, which is folic acid is cheaper. Folic acid is more shelf-stable. That's why folic acid is used in multivitamins. That's why, why you know, if you added methylfolate to enrich white flour, the, the bread is going to have less folate in it um, because it's less, it's less shelf-stable. Folic acid is better absorbed. That's why if you look at a methylfolate supplement and it says 400 micrograms DFE, that's dietary folate equivalents, that's not 400 micrograms of methylfolate. That's 
I'm not sure. I don't remember the calc- the uh, conversion factor off the top of my head, but it's a lot more than that because folic acid is absorbed so much more effectively than methylfolate that you have to add more and then use a conversion factor to bring it down to dietary folate equivalents, which means that is an extra dose of methylfolate and is equal to is if you had consumed 400 micrograms of synthetic folic acid, which is more effectively absorbed. So the reason that it's used in, in uh, the public health sphere is more absorbable, more shelf-stable, uh, and cheaper. And, so, and because it's more absorbable and it's more shelf-stable, that makes it even more cheaper because you don't have to add as much. You know, if you, were, if you were using methylfolate, not only would it be more expensive, but you'd have to add more to account for the fact that it's, a lot of it's going to get destroyed on the shelf and then less of it's going to be absorbed, right? So if you're talking about like the cost of a public health campaign to do something really simple to add a nutrient to junk food to make sure that uh, pe- to reduce the risk of neural tube defects, then it, it makes sense. But I think that who are we? We are highly motivated people who are trying to make the best choices and we're willing to deal with a little bit of inconvenience or, or extra money to make those best choices. And if that, if that sounds like you, then, um, then, fo- then synthetic folic acid is not the best choice. Uh, the best choice is to deal with the inconvenience and extra expense of getting folate from food or when you need when you can't get the folate you need from food to use a supplement that has folate in food form. But, you know, listen to what I said and compare that to the level of, of what I think is, I don't like to be accusatory, but I think it's fairly accurate to call hysteria around the idea that folic acid is, is poison. And I actually think it's harmful because this comes back to what I said before, and I know I'm, I'm kind of ranting now. There's people out there who think that because they cut out white flour out of their diet, that is unambiguously a good choice. Not really. White flour isn't a good food, and cutting it out of your diet is a good choice in the context of properly designing the rest of your diet. But you have to realize that if you're eating white bread all the time, you are the beneficiary of the elite heads of nutrition science and the government. I know people hate the government and and mainstream nutrition, but look, you've been the beneficiary of these people spending 100 years figuring out what are people most likely to, to suffer from in nutrient deficiencies and how do we do something cheap? to stop that from happening. We add it to the junk that we know that we eat because the junk fortified with nutrients listen to us if we tell them to eat um, three servings of legumes or leafy greens a day. And that's true, right? Who, how many people eat the five to nine servings of fruits and vegetables a day that the government recommends? It's a pain to do that. And so most people don't, don't do it. And I'm not, I'm not saying that it's, you should eat the white flour, but look in Guatemala, what did, what did they add vitamin A to to stop people from having vitamin A deficiency so bad that they would become permanently blind? They added vitamin A to sugar. Why? Because people eat sugar. And so you can tell people that sugar is bad for you and you'll get fatty liver. 
and the United States, you will have zero risk to telling someone that because there's nothing added to the sugar. But if you go to Guatemala, I don't know if they're still doing that, but let's say for the sake of argument that they are. If you go to Guatemala and you go around preaching to everyone to stop eating sugar because they're going to get fatty liver disease, what's going to happen? They're going to go blind because these people are eating sugar that is their only source of vitamin A. Um, I, I'm simplifying here a little bit. I, I, I know that um, I'm, there's plenty of people eating in Guatemala eating good things. But you, the point that I'm making is the general population that is, benef- is benefiting from that campaign. Iodized salt. Why don't, pe- why don't most people get goiter anymore in the United States? Uh, it's because iodized salt. Why do some people get goiter now? Be- why, you know, I, I talked to, um, I've talked, I talked to a cardiologist uh, William Davis, the uh, wheat belly guy, I was talking to him and he was saying, you know, last 10 years or so, now all of a sudden I see people walking into the, to the clinic who have guiders in their neck. Why? Uh, because he's treating people in an area where the iodine is deficient in the soil and people are told, being told to avoid salt. Well, there's contexts in which soy, salt avoidance, now, I mean, I don't want to compare salt to sugar uh, because salt is good for you in the right and, you know, salting your food to taste is good for most people most of the time. But it's, a, it's still the same thing. The public health campaign did a cheap, simple, easy thing to get rid of goiter by adding iodine to salt. And so you come in and you say, salt is better. It raises your blood pressure. Well, you know, now you're playing the lottery because if you're telling people that in an iodine deficient soil area, they're going to get goiter. Um, so look, it's, it's like white flour is bad for you. But when you, when you decide that I'm going to do better, I'm going to do it for myself instead of be managed by the people running nutrition. Um, you got to realize that the people running nutrition in the United States are not the dumbest people on the planet. I don't care what you think about low carb or saturated fat. I don't care what you disagree with them on. They are not the dumbest people on the planet. And... And when you eat six pieces of white flour toast every day, you're the beneficiary of what they, what they decided to do to that to minimize the risk of severe clinical nutrient deficiencies. Um, and so I'm very, I'm very worried that there are people who, who don't see that nuance and they think that they just cut out white flour and therefore they're better off. Uh, no, you cut out white flour. Now you need to do more work to make sure that you're actually getting your nutrients from whole foods. Because if you were eating six pieces of white toast today, you didn't have to worry about getting nutrients from whole foods, and now you do. Um, okay, uh, there's, a, there's a chat. I'll look at the chat in a second and, um, and uh, try to finish up this first question that I've turned into a very long rant. Doug says, for veggies... Seems like a quandary between fresh deteriorating on the shelf and in shipment versus flash frozen, presumably being higher nutritional content. But then there's the folate issue. Yeah, I, Doug, I totally agree. It's it's a quandary. Um, so yeah, that's the thing. Like you buy fresh vegetables in the store; they're not that fresh, and then they sit in your refrigerator for five days. They're less fresh, and there's a lot of nutrients that are stable in the freezer. If the nose nutrients are stable in the freezer, then you're getting the most nutritious food from the perspective of those nutrients when they are flat, when they are flash frozen, when fresh. 
And that's why there was an argument for a very long time that you should eat frozen vegetables because they were frozen when they were fresh. And so there was less nutrient degradation. That's true for everything that's stable in the freezer, but folate's not stable in the freezer. So I'm not saying don't eat frozen vegetables. I'm saying if you eat frozen vegetables, count it as zero folate and make up for it with legumes or supplements or liver or, or whatever else. Uh, let's check out the chat. Um, haha, I love this rant. Okay, perfect. Um, okay, I'm, I'm, glad that, uh, I'm glad that the rant... Um, was not, how do I close the chat? Ah, close. All right, glad that the round was helpful. Todd Becker says, hi, Chris. Any thoughts on myasthenia gravis? Is this a B1 manganese deficiency disorder? Do you think related to, um, to EBV? EBV is uh, blanking here. Um, Ebola virus? Um, my friend has the confirmed... Myasthenia gravis with high acetylcholine antibodies and active EBV. Any thoughts effectively squashing EBV? Is uh, I'm going to Google this. Is EBV? Oh, Epstein Barr virus. <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, guys, don't please don't use abbreviations because um, I don't care how obvious they are. There's a high chance that I'm not going to get what you're talking about. Um, okay, so um, I'm sorry, I, Tom. I have not I have not done the work on myasthenia gravis really to understand this. Um, so I'm going to have to revisit that when I'm in a better position to answer it. So uh, keep asking that. Keep asking me questions about that, and it'll get onto my list. Uh, Danielle Francis says. Reasons ferritin would be low, 15 nanograms per milliliter, when hemochromatosis iron overload is present through very high transferrin saturation and serum and low unbound iron binding capacity. When treating get overload by a blood loss in the past, the ferritin continued to drop. Daniela, I answered a very similar question in the last AMA from Chris Morell. And, um, and so I'll, I'll answer this, uh, but I, I would encourage people who are interested in this question to also listen to, to the last AMA to get some extra details there. So ferritin is your long-term iron storage, and transferrin, transferrin is your short-term iron storage. And the problem with hemochromatosis is that usually in a normal functioning system, there is a hormonal regulatory system that prevents you from absorbing iron from food when you have enough iron, and that when you have too much iron, shuttles the iron into ferritin, which is protective, both against pathogens eating the iron to grow and against oxidative stress, which free iron causes, which, if you don't know the details about, can be thought of as wear and tear on your tissues over time. And in hemochromatosis, the defect is that transferrin, uh, normally the way you judge how much iron you have is in the circulating transferrin pool, which is your short-term storage, how full is it? And so the defect in hemochromatosis is that when the short-term storage transferrin starts getting fuller than usual, you don't notice it. So you don't stop absorbing iron from food. That makes the transferrin saturation go up even further. 
but you don't kick iron, kick, uh, shuttle the iron into ferritin. That makes ferritin lower. What people get confused by is that historically, we have only paid attention to hemochromatosis when it's too late, when the person's been suffering for it from 30 or 40 years and they need organ transplants. And so what happens at that point is that the ferritin is very, very high. Why is the ferritin high? Not because you had too much iron. The person without hemochromatosis has the ferritin go up when they have too much iron. The defect in hemochromatosis is that you do not stop absorbing from food when you have enough, and you do not put the iron into ferritin when, uh, when you have too much. The reason that ferritin is high in someone who's had hemochromatosis for 30 or 40 years is not because they have too much iron. It is because they have oxidative stress and damage caused by that iron. Oxidative stress and damage causes ferritin to go up no matter how much iron you have. So does infection, no matter how much iron you have. And so essentially what you have is ferritin is not the fireman that he should be to put out the fire as it starts and the smoke detectors go off. Ferritin hemochromatosis is the cleanup crew who got to the fire after the house burned down. And so the question is, why would ferritin be low in hemochromatosis iron overload when transferrin saturation is very high? And, uh, and the answer is because you haven't had hemochromatosis for 40 years. And if these, um, if these are your results, I, I believe, uh, then if these are your results, then you are female. And I'm not sure your age, but in general, females compared to males are powerfully protected against iron overload because of the blood loss that occurs during menstruation. And so if, if these are female data, then you're like 20 or 30 years behind a man of the same age. You know, even, even for a postmenopausal female who's 65, there's like 30 years, and I know there's variation in, in blood loss through the degree of menstrual flow, but still, just take the average female. The average female is, is like at 70, at 70 years old, is like if they have hemochromatosis, they're like a man in, who's 30 with hemochromatosis. That's barely the beginning of problems starting to arise because... Danielle is 27 and the midwife is concerned about her, her levels. So Danielle, like a, a man who's 27, who has hemochromatosis genetics, would never be diagnosed with hemochromatosis by the standard conventional historical criteria because it's just not bad enough yet. So a woman who's 27 you know, of course you're gonna, your ferritin is going to be low because you're looking at this happening 40 years before you would, you would see the blood markers that are expected. So you probably, I don't know who diagnosed you with hemochromatosis, but you probably um, are, you're looking at the genetics and you're looking at the blood markers that, that I recommend. So you're looking at it way before the fact. So should you be concerned about the, the ferritin? Um, uh, well, look, first of all, I'm not a doctor. And so you, you have to not, you have to not take my answer as as uh, 
treatment and pregnancy management advice. But I'll answer this in the context of, you know, what I, what I think, what I would do myself if I were in that situation. So if I were in that situation, I would be, I would be, uh, knowing what I know about iron physiology, I would be assuming that the low ferritin is not indicating that your total body iron stores are low. It's indicating a problem with the feedback loop. So my suspicion is going to be that your thyroid is probably fine, which would not be fine in iron deficiency, and that your hemoglobin and your red blood cell count is probably fine, which it would not be in iron deficiency. And so I would, I would not be donating blood leading into the pregnancy because I, I because I think you want your your um, I mean. I don't know what the recommendations around pregnancy are in this, but I imagine that you um, would want to have the full capacity of your body <laughs> at your disposal. And so I wouldn't do anything depleting anything leading into pregnancy unless it was strongly warranted. Uh, but would I be worried that my ferritin was low? Not the ferritin, but I would probably look at my thyroid markers and I would look at a complete blood count to make sure that I wasn't anemic and I wasn't hypothyroid. If I wasn't anemic and I wasn't hypothyroid, I would conclude that the low ferritin was, was not an issue. All right, I hope that helps, Danielle. Brad, uh, Brad says, working with clinician at California Center for Functional Medicine, Dutch tests revealed pyroglutamate levels of 3,359 micrograms per, I think you have those units wrong, uh, 3,359 something, and 2,884 in follow-up tests, highest level the lab has ever seen. Normal range is 43 to 85. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, so this is very high. Clinical clinician suspects mitochondrial dysfunction and or problems with glutathione pathway. I have also Genova Organics and ion test results. Thoughts? So uh, pyroglutamate is, no, Brad, those units are still wrong because you have a unit of mass against a unit of mass, um, and so it's got to be a unit of mass against a unit of volume. It, but it doesn't matter. I, I don't need the units to answer your question. So pyroglutamate is, um, its other name is is 5-oxoproline, uh, and it is something that is primarily produced when you are synthesizing glutathione, but you do not have enough of the second step in glutathione synthesis to keep up with the first step. So let me, let me explain that in a little more detail. So, when you, so glutathione is the master antioxidant of the cell. It's also critically important for detoxification. It's also critically important for lung function, especially keeping mucus fluid and especially keeping the airways dilated. Asthma is largely a local deficiency of glutathione in the lung. For example, congestion would probably involve low levels of glutathione in the lung. A lot of lung diseases involve low levels of glutathione. And glutathione is also extremely important in cellular repair and cell division 
and it also regulates hundreds of proteins. Okay, so glutathione is super important. What is it? It's a tripeptide, which means that it's made from three amino acids. Those three amino acids are glutamate, cysteine, and glycine. In the first step of glutathione synthesis, you join, glutath uh, you join glutamate to cysteine, and you make gamma-glutamyl cysteine. That requires magnesium. It requires ATP. It requires insulin. It also is strongly regulated by the need for glutathione. So if you have oxidative stress, you're going to do that more than if you didn't have oxidative stress because you need more glutathione. The glutathione, when you have enough, will stop that step because you have enough, right? So there's a negative feedback loop there. Um, and, uh, and also, many of the polyphenols in fruits and vegetables through what we call hormesis, which means a little bit of bad is good for you, those are, are, are the polyphenols that we consider antioxidants. Our bodies consider toxins, and they're good for us in part because they upregulate glutathione synthesis. So they also will stimulate that enzyme. Now, in the second step, you join glycine to the gamma glutamyl cysteine to make glutathione. That also requires magnesium, it also requires ATP. And it, it, and it requires glycine. And as I've covered in, in, many, um, in many things that I've put out, we, we all probably need a little bit more glycine, especially if we eat a lot of animal products because animal proteins are very rich in methionine, which increases the need for glycine. Also because it appears that glycine synthesis, we make our own glycine, was uh, that that pathway it evolved to satisfy the need for um, small invertebrates and for people like us who have dramatically more collagen as a component of our, of our tissues because of our skin and bones especially, uh, we, we fall short of what we need for glycine synthesis by up to 10 to 60 grams a day depending on the person. So pyroglutamate is something that elevates when that first step goes forward and then the body says, oh, wait, I can't do the second step. What am I going to do with this gamma-glutamyl cysteine? So it recycles it. In the process of recycling it, it makes pyroglutamate. And that winds up in your urine. So what we know this tells us is that the first step of glutathione synthesis is exceeding the capacity for the last step. Why would this exceed? Why, would, why wouldn't the, the last step go forward? Well, you could have a profound deficiency in glycine um, but you could see that pretty easily because you said you also have um, Genova ion panel. So the Genova ion panel will have glycine. If it was the plus 40 amino acids, it would also have sarcosine. Um, so if the glycine levels are low, that's a big clue that the problem is because glycine is missing. If the sarcosine levels are elevated, then that gives you further clues about why the glycine is low, that would indicate that you're over-methylating the glycine and, th and that's why you're losing it. If the glycine's not low, then glycine being low isn't your problem. And so that suggests that you have um, a problem with the enzyme. And uh, if, so it does not suggest that you have a deficiency of magnesium or ATP or insulin or um, or anything else that I was just talking about, because those would all Im impact the first step. So it's only glycine or the enzyme. And if it's not glycine, you probably have a 
glutathione synthetase deficiency, which is the enzymatic deficiency that could cause that. Uh, barring that, you know, it's theoretically, you could just have an extremely overreactive first step. And so you don't have a defective second step. You just are producing the first step so massively outpacing the second step, the same thing happens. But I think that you would know that if you look at your glutathione levels. So probably if the pyroglutamate is the highest the lab has ever seen, probably the glutathione levels are really, really low. And um, Brad says the glycine level. I, Brad, I don't remember the uh, range on that. Can you put the range? Um, so, you know, you could have extraordinary oxidative stress upregulating the first step, but then your glutathione levels are going to look like crap. And, okay, so his, his uh, glycine is on the lowish end, but it's not that low. I mean, there's, like, look, maybe you need more glycine, but your glycine isn't low enough to cause orders of magnitude higher pyroglutamate, right? So... It's almost certainly the case that you have a glutathione synthetase deficiency unless you have extraordinary levels of oxidative stress. And I think that would be easy to test for because I just can't imagine that your glutathione levels um, act so... I guess it's not that easy to test for because... If you have a glutathione synthetase defect, you're going to have bad glutathione levels. And if you have a if you have a tremendous amount of oxidative stress, you're all you're also going to have low glutathione levels. And if you have low glutathione levels, that's going to cause a tremendous amount of oxidative stress. Okay, so I, I take back what I said about it easy being easy to figure out. Um, I think it's easy to figure out by doing an enzymatic assay for glutathione synthetase. So you are speaking with you said the clinician. Um, so I, I would I would ask the clinician to get you a glutathione synthetase test, and if if the clinician is not able to do that, okay. So I mean, a, a, Amy, he's working with Amy Amy Net at uh, CCFM, which is uh, California Center for Functional Medicine. So I don't know what her experience is with this, uh, but I mean, she's not a clinical geneticist, so you could just ask her if she can run that test for you. If she can, then uh, she can do it. If she can't, then uh, she would need probably need to refer you to a clinical geneticist. Um, and there's a lot fewer of those than most doctors, but they're around. Um, I think if it's not a glutathione synthetase defect, then it becomes a lot harder to figure out what it is because it it probably means you have massive oxidative stress from somewhere and there's a lot of things that could, could cause that. So that would be a potential uh, Pandora's box of questions that would come out of that. But definitely the first step would be to look at glutathione synthetase. All right, I hope that helps, Brad. Oh, Pamela tacks on to this question. Perhaps related question here, does high or high normal GGT indicate a potential shortage of glutathione. I had heard that from a functional practitioner, specifically the body's trying to make more glutathione. Uh, it, mm, 
I don't know. So GGT is um I think that usually when it's elevated, it's going to indicate something very similar to liver enzymes, so-called liver enzymes. I hate that term. Uh, where the reason it's elevated is because the liver cells are getting damaged. Um, I would not. I would not use it. I mean, it, that maybe that's true, uh, but I. I don't think that is anywhere near specific enough to use it that way. If you want to look at whether the body is trying to make more glutathione, then pyroglutamate is good because that indicates that, I mean, it's not specific to the need. It indicates that the need is exceeding the capacity of the second step. But if the need is very elevated, that the, it, often the capacity of the second step will be elevated. The other thing is you could look at um, alpha-hydroxybutyrate which is a marker of, of homocysteine breakdown. And that's, that happens, like when you need more glutathione, you upregulate CBS, cystathionine beta synthase, in order to convert homocysteine to cysteine for glutathione synthesis. And when you do that, alpha-hydroxybutyrate comes as a byproduct of that. So that would be useful. Uh, okay, Patty Beverlin says, taking collagen daily has significantly reduced my joint pain. That's great. However, it also seems to cause me to wake up several times a night to pee. Is there anything I could try doing that might mitigate that effect? Ah, taking collagen daily. Okay, so, the, so it's reduced her joint pain. That, that itself is great. It's causing her to wake up several times at night to pee. While I'm thinking, if anyone has a brainstorming idea, uh, reply to the question and, and put it in there. Um, Ta, but reply to the question in, instead of the um, instead of the uh, the chat because it's easier for me to see. Um, so Pamela asks, Patty, are you mixing this with fluids, and are you take? And I would add to that, are you taking it at night? Um, so if you could reply to the question. Tom says, Tom said in the chat that glycine reduces sodium. Um, off the top, Tom, do you know how that works? Off the top of my head, I, I'm not, um, I'm not thinking of it. So if it, if it does reduce your sodium levels in your blood, it could reduce the sodium levels in your brain. And that would that would lower the secretion of antidiuretic hormone or ADH, which is what stops you from peeing at night. So if that's true, um, okay, Tob says she has a nurse's guide that talks about it and it can cause headaches, for example, the glycine reducing sodium. Okay, off the top of my head, I don't know how glycine reduces sodium, but let's take that at face value. So the... Patty clarifies, I take it with about four ounces of orange juice. I used to take it in the morning, was off for a few weeks and added it back a week ago, and I'm taking it in the evening now. Well, uh, I mean, four ounces of orange juice is not a lot of fluid. I doubt that's what's making you pee. But you could always, you know, if, if it's possible that just taking it at night is doing something that taking it in the morning doesn't do, and you get the benefit of the joint pain taking it in the morning, then why bother even trying to figure this out? Just take it in the morning. But um, if if the point that Tab raised, like the glycine can reduce sodium levels, if that's correct, 
um, then, then that could be an explanation because reducing sodium levels is going to reduce antidiuretic hormone. And that antidiuretic hormone is what naturally rises at night to stop you from waking up to pee. In fact, ADH is regulated by your circadian rhythm to increase at night for the specific purpose of making sure that you don't wake up to pee. So if you do wake up to pee in the middle of the night, either your sleep is real bad, or even if your sleep is real bad, there's probably something wrong with your circadian regulation of ADH. In your particular case, um, Marcus says, try adding an eighth to a quarter teaspoon of salt to the mix. And Patty says, so would, should I increase in sodium and take it supper? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think Marcus is right there. Um, well, oh no, I think first case, if there's no benefit to taking at night versus the morning, take it in the morning, right? That, Cause that's the simplest, the simplest way to go back to what was working before to not have this problem. But if you, if there's a reason to take it at night, try increasing sodium. She had problems in the morning. Okay. So um, yeah. So take it at night and add, if I increase sodium at dinner, but also, you know, consider taking sodium later, like before you go to bed, take a pinch of salt and don't drink any water with it. That's a possible, a possible benefit. Um, Tom's having trouble responding to the Q&A. There should be a reply button there, Tom. Um, okay, I mean, I'll check the chat just in, in case there's replies in the chat. Um, uh, okay, so I just, so that's my answer to that. I just realized that I had been forgetting to save the questions in my little, uh, in my little notepad here. I need to, I need to do that because if I do it afterwards, they wind up all out of order. So, um, I will be with you guys in just a minute. All right, almost done. One more paste. Okay, sorry for the delay. Pamela Schoenfeld says, what are your thoughts on the relationship between high blood levels of vitamin B12 and cancer? This is something that professional associates of mine have observed, and I recently saw a patient with very high B12 levels who had not been eating liver, not taking supplements with B12. This patient does not currently have a cancer diagnosis. Uh, Pamela, I... I wish I could answer this, but I really feel like I'm not a good person to answer it because um, mainly because my knowledge of cancer is like way behind my knowledge of B12. This would be a great, uh, you know, one thing I'm going to start doing is asking some people to come on with me and do ask us anything about some things. And maybe I'll do a cancer one in the, uh, in the future, but uh, my instinct is to say, look, if the if the person is not eating liver and they're not taking B12 supplements, then there's no way on earth 
that a high B12 level indicates that there's too much input of B12. That seems, that seems impossible, right? This is impossible. They're not getting B12 injections. They're not taking supplements. They're eating regular foods. Regular, the standard American diet of a meat-heavy omnivore is mediocre in B12. <laughs> it's, it's, um, I'm talking about with respect to the RDA for B12. It's mediocre in B12. And one of the things that you have to keep in mind too is that the ideal diet is basically providing, um, it's basically providing enough B12 for a day in every meal. Why? Because that's the maximum you can possibly absorb. And because you can accumulate enough B12 that way, enough extra B12, that when you're 60 and you have subclinical gastritis from 55 years of increasing H. pylori in your stomach, then when your B12 absorption from food starts tanking, you have enough to last till you're 90 and be in perfect health, right? So normal American diet is just barely hitting the RDA, if that. And uh, there's just no way someone eating a normal diet who has high B12 is, you couldn't even explain it by hyperabsorbing it from food. There's just not enough B12 in their diet to explain it that way. So it has to be the case that either the B12 isn't getting into the cells to be activated at the rate that it should, or that the B12 is leaking out of the cells. And I just don't know enough about cancer metabolism. This is a great question for, for a cancer researcher. Is there anything that would explain? Um, I, you know, I will say that Um, Pam, um, okay, Pamela added something. I'm not sure what you mean by my previous answer. I'm just going to finish this answer. So uh, I will say that I, I do think that deficient methylation is going to raise the risk of cancer. I think that's a very plausible... Yeah, Pam, I won't go into that in too, too much detail, but I, it's, it's worth it to re-explain this here because a lot of people um, you know, are going to listen to this that weren't listening to that one. So I think the context is good. Um, so I do think it's possible that someone could have some primary defect in getting the B12 into the cells, that that would tank methylation and that the low methylation would contribute to the cancer. That's conceivable. Um, but for a cancer researcher, I'd be very curious to know for someone who knows way more about cancer than I do, if there's anything about any types of cancer that could explain either secretion or cellular damage causing B12 to come out or some regulatory factor that could be influencing the liver's circulation of B12 for other tissues. Like is there a, is a, is a cancer making a gimme, gimme, gimme signal that goes to the liver and starts transferring B12? I don't, I don't know. I think, you know, it's an awesome question, but I don't know what the answer is to that.
Okay. Uh, Marcus Matthiasen says, my calcium intake is low around 400 milligrams a day because I don't tolerate many calcium-rich foods. My blood calcium is normal. PTH is mid-range. Vitamin D is 48 nanograms per milliliter. Hair calcium is high. RBC calcium is in the third quintile. Do you think my calcium status is sufficient or should I take a supplement? Um, I think the overwhelmingly important uh, marker here is the PTH. You said the PTH is in the middle of the normal range, which means to me that it's at the high end of the optimal range or maybe a little bit outside it. So the normal, I believe that, that PTH outside the context of, of clinical issues with can, uh, tumors and, um, and, and you know, problem, medical problems in the parathyroid gland that are not relevant to nutrition, most of the time, what PTH is signaling is the body's own perception that the calcium vitamin D economy is deficient. And the, the vitamin D requirement or the, 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 uh, the marker, the, tw- the, normal, the optimal ranges for 25-OHD, which is the marker of vitamin D adequacy that's used, are set on the basis of population-level maximal suppression of PTH. So I look at it this, I look at this as if you want to individualize the vitamin D calcium requirement, you look at individual suppression of PTH in a person. I don't know for sure where the cutoff is. I suspect based on the data that I've seen, which I don't think are adequate, but there's enough data out there from randomized controlled trials to get a general sense of what the point, the average point of maximal suppression is. And that seems to be around 30. I've seen some data that make me think maybe it's around 20. And I also have reasons to speculate that maybe it's different in every person. And maybe that the point of maximal suppression is a range between 20 and 30. So what I would do is, I would first, my suspicion is that your, your intake is probably fine for you. But I would... And I'm assuming that by mid-range, you mean it's 30. If you mean it's 40, then no, you're deficient or you're probably deficient and you need to test whether how you respond. But what I would say is it would still be good for you to try increasing that and see if the PTH goes down anymore. Because my baseline for where I suspect someone's PTH is maximally suppressed is 30. But the evidence that it's maximally suppressed is that it doesn't get suppressed by more calcium and vitamin D goes down in response to calcium and vitamin D, then it wasn't maximally suppressed. And you, where you want to be is not 30 or 20. It's the point of maximal suppression. Then the final thing is magnesium deficiency can compromise your ability to make PTH. And I don't think that the average person in our society is deficient enough in magnesium for that to be relevant on the basis that population-wide, most people have too much PTH, and that contributes to osteopenia and osteoporosis. Um, but, you know, the, but the big caveat here is if you, if you are magnesium deficient, then that might invalidate most of what I said if you're deficient enough to affect PTH. So, you know, most probably, if you mean 30 or below, 
Um, okay, Marcus, if you want, if you're posting up a follow-up question, then you ev actually everyone, if you're posting up a follow-up to your current question that is is relevant, make sure you do it as a reply. If it's a new question, then then do it as a new question. Um, anyway, Marcus, my 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 suspicion is if your PTH is around thirty and not higher than that, you're probably fine. But it's good to know your magnesium status because if it's really bad, that could change that interpretation. And it's also good to know if adding more calcium suppresses your PTH further because if it does, that's probably calcium that you need. Thanks for your question, Marcus. Pamela asks, does that NTX urine test for bone resorption help here? Um, there are urinary markers of bone resorption. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could, you could argue that if the bone resorption isn't elevated, then the, then the PTH isn't elevating bone resorption. I don't know, though, because I don't, I don't know what I don't know how linear the relationship is, so I would rather go with the PTH. But I I definitely think that 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 urinary markers of bone resorption could help you um, assess the degree to which there might be a clinically relevant PTH mediated mediated elevation of bone resorption. So that's true. Um, all right, thanks for your question, Marcus. Jennifer Dunlap says, a client with a lifetime history of plaque psoriasis has dysregulated blood sugar and apparent histamine intolerance after six months of Humira, a medication used for autoimmune diseases such as psoriasis and rheumatoid arthritis. While he probably had some degree of histamine intolerance prior to this medication, his blood sugar was quite stable and he could eat infrequently. Do you think it's more likely that the new blood sugar instability is the result of immune changes, liver damage, or some other mechanism? He's eating frequently for now, but I'd like to tell him his liver will recover the resilience he had before. Well, if his blood sugar is no longer as stable and he has histamine intolerance, um, then that drug probably interferes with vitamin B6 metabolism. So... Um, let me uh, let me try to take one minute to uh, to see if I can find quick information on this. Um, I can't. So um, I can't find it quickly. So my instinct is to say that the drug is affecting vitamin B6 metabolism 
on the basis that 80% of the vitamin B6 in the body is used for glycogen metabolism in the liver, which is the thing that that stabilizes your blood sugar between meals. So if your blood sugar is not stable between meals any longer, then yeah, it could be a hormonal thing, but it's it might, you know, the, what it really probably means is that there's something wrong with your ability, the liver's ability to store glycogen or to access the glycogen when it's stored. Because your blood sugar is stabilized between meals exclusively by the liver's glycogen metabolism. So how does that relate to histamine intolerance? They're both caused by B6 deficiency. So that's my, my take. Um, I would, I'd measure his, his um, blood levels of pyridoxal 5-phosphate. Off the top of my head, I believe LabCorp has a test for that. And it would be helpful to look at his excretion of xantharinate, kynarinate, and quinolinate on an organic acids test. The Genova Ion has all three of those. I don't think the other ones available have all three, but they every urinary organic acids test has some of those. Um, and I would go from there. I mean, if you want to save money, just trial a pyridoxal 5-phosphate, which is the active form of B6. Trial a supplement of that to see if it helps. Um, and if you know if it's, and I would do that at maybe start with 10 milligrams. But feel free to work up slowly over a few weeks to 100 milligrams. And if a few weeks at 100 milligrams doesn't treat that, um, then there's, and he's off the drug, then there's something else going on. And I don't know what it is, but, um, but that would definitely be first line thinking for me. Thank you, Jennifer, for your question. I'm glad that was helpful. One second. Catherine Foote says, not sure if this question is too general, but what are your thoughts on dealing with root canals that do not hurt? Many in the alternate alternative field believe that all root canals are infected by definition other than extraction of the tooth. Thank you. Um, I am a little torn on this. So Weston Price did, before Weston Price embarked on his journeys that led to the publication of Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, which is an epic work of uh, pioneering work in nutritional anthropology. Before he did that, he spent 25 years as the first research director for what became the American Dental Association, researching in laboratory science and clinical science what were the causes of tooth decay and the consequences of tooth decay. And he developed a focal infection theory that basically stated that because the dental tubules 
which are the means of nourishment inside the, te- the teeth. They're kind of like capillaries, but they're not blood vessels. But they're, they're kind of like capillaries are to blood vessels in the sense that capillaries are very thin. They're getting into all the nooks and crannies that the larger vessels can't get into. So the dental tubules are, are this very convoluted, um, very complex means of nourishing the teeth. And Price's argument was that no matter what you do to get the infection out of the main areas of the teeth, you are never going to get it out of the, the nooks and crannies of the dental tubules. And so if you create, if you, if you basically try to get rid of the infection and then you stuff something in there and make sure it never comes out, you create a hypoxic environment that basically causes whatever's in there to mutate in the worst possible form. And that doesn't mean that it'll cause harm, but it means that it could, if it starts leaking out of the tooth, cause harm. And that there's nothing you can do to make sure that it doesn't uh, leak out of the teeth. And he did experiments showing that people who had chronic diseases like arthritis, if he took out their root canal tooth, he could put it in a rabbit, like under the skin in a rabbit, and the rabbit would get the exact same problem that the person had. And he wrote a two-volume series on this. In fact, um, I have it here, I believe. You can get this from the Price Pottinger Nutrition Foundation. This is, I don't know if this is going to come out backwards on the screen or not, but this is uh, Dental Infections, Oral and Systemic, Part 1, Volume 1, Part 1, Volume 1, Part 2, Volume 2, Part 2, and Volume... Oh, sorry, that was volume two, part two, volume two, part one. Okay, so there's uh, that's a lot to read. And I haven't made it my way all the way through. What I did make my way all the way through was a much shorter book by George Meinig, who unfortunately is no longer alive. And George Meinig wrote a book called Root Canal Cover-Up. And Meinig was, uh, in fact, I probably have that here too. Uh, it's probably it's probably over there. If I I don't see where it is on my shelf, so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna botch up. If I try to give Mining's biography without looking at the book, I'm gonna botch it up. But he was a root canal guy, an endodontist, and he was. He was the president of some uh, endodontal society at some point. So this, he was not a conspiracy theorist on the, on the periphery of, uh, he was not an outsider looking in on root canals, right? He was, he was tip-top credentials. Now, the endodontists say that Price's work was discredited a long time ago and that this is complete BS, but the endodontists are the people who do root canals. <laughs> and so what are they going to say? Well, what are they? Of course they're going to say that. What, what, what could they say unless they are retired 
accept this is a bunch of BS. It was discredited a long time ago. And no, you should not completely put us out of work. Um, and so, you know, Meinig had the credentials and he was retired when he wrote the book, right? So that's kind of the ideal recipe to find someone who, um, who is honest and knows what they're talking about. And I was pretty convinced when I read Meinig's work. Now, the problem is um, I have no idea to what degree modern science has adjusted to this. And now I can't even ask Meinig what, to what degree has the evolution of endodontal techniques since you wrote the book, to what degree have they changed how we should view this because he's not alive anymore. And I don't know anyone who can fill his shoes. So look, I, if, <laughs> if you want a personal story on how conflicted I feel about this, I literally have two root canals in the same teeth on each side of my mouth that were the legacy of my veganism. One of these on this side has been extracted using Weston Price's protocol. His protocol was not to just to pull out the tooth, but also to remove the periodontal ligament and the first few millimeters of bone so that healthy bone would grow in and replace the, the socket. So you wouldn't have a hole there that bacteria could grow in. Um, so that's done on this side. And on this side, I have a titanium post and a root canal for my vegan days. I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, so my, you know, my suspicion is, I wish I could give you a black and white answer. I know that it's not that useful to have an answer that's just nothing but gray zones. But I'm very skeptical of how good root canals are but I also just, um, I'm not so terrified that I'm highly motivated to get the other one taken out, even though, you know, I, it probably is the lasting thing in my life that I should do more research on, on what to do about. So I'm, I'm sorry, I can't give you a better answer than that. All I can say is, is yes, uh, it is justified to be worried about the risks of root canals. Um, what you should definitely, what, no, so I can say this totally unambiguously, um, what you should absolutely definitely not ever do is make your decisions about something that has any potential to be a root canal situation without a dentist. And, um, and I, so I, had a, I, had a, I have a friend who's a dentist and she read Rami Nagel's, what was it? Uh, Cure Tooth Decay? What, I forget the name of his book. Um, Prevent and Reverse Tooth Decay, maybe that was it. There was one thing that made her really angry in that, which was she got the sense that he was giving, and I don't know if this is accurate, but this was her sense. She got the sense that he was giving people the impression that they could use pain as an indicator of whether their teeth were fine. And the thing is, if your tooth pain goes away, that might mean that the problem causing the tooth pain went away, or it might mean that the problem destroyed the nerve in your tooth, okay? So yes, be skeptical and a little bit worried about the potential downsides of root canals, 
But do not ever think that because your tooth pain went away, that you can let that go free. And if you're not going to fill that tooth with something, you're going to need to see a dentist who is highly qualified to do something else other than a root canal with it. So that's, that's the caveat to, um, to this. Jennifer says tooth infections are serious. Yeah. There's, look, the, the, um, they're serious from a dental perspective. Uh, but the whole point of Price's work was they're serious from whole body health. And, you know, I, Price was a pioneer in so many things. This is another one, right? Now there's increasing evidence that inflammation in your mouth and decay in your mouth is tied to other diseases. Like periodontitis is tied to heart disease, for example. Price was the pioneer of saying that the infections in your mouth are, are causing other diseases in the rest of your body. Tiana Talon says, I heard Lane Norton discussing ways to maximize muscle protein synthesis. One of the rate limiters he discussed was leucine levels. He said that three grams of leucine would maximize muscle protein synthesis at each feeding. Does this make sense based on your knowledge? Um, so this is something that I take, this is something that Alex Leaf is much better versed on than I am. And so I'm going to tell you what I've taken out of my conversations with him even though you'd probably get a better answer from him. So leucine is metabolized into a leucine metabolite that is the signal of protein synthesis. It is, it's, it's the thing that tells your muscles whether they should be synthesizing protein. But do you synthesize more protein when you upregulate all the all the factors of muscle protein synthesis. Well, that is entirely dependent on the amount of amino acids you have supplied. And so does it make any, you know, think about it this way. Why is leucine used as the marker to determine how much muscle protein to make? Because usually when you get leucine, it's with high quality protein that has all the other amino acids that you need to make to make muscle protein. And so my impression is that all of the research is leading to the fact that there is absolutely nothing more superior than eating protein from whole foods and that everything is inferior to it. And there's a lot to work out in details. Like, I don't know if it's true that eating um, lentils at you know, adjusted for the essential amino or adjusted for an index of protein quality to adjust the amount of protein is better than, than whey protein. I don't know. But, but eggs are better than isolated proteins. That's been shown. And it's probably because there are other things. And now the question is, is it, is meat better than isolated protein? I don't know. So, the research is pointing in the direction that at least some whole foods are just better than protein supplements, number one. Perhaps as a general principle, perhaps whole protein foods are better than protein supplements, number two. And number three, taking leucine or the leucine metabolite that regulates muscle protein synthesis is not going to be better than getting whole proteins, even from protein supplements, when you get enough protein to provide that leucine. 
because the leucine and its metabolite don't actually achieve peak muscle protein synthesis unless you supply the protein with it. And if you supply the protein with it, you do get the leucine. So there probably are, are questions that can still be worked out about this, but there probably is, it's probably going to wind up being that it's a waste of time to take the leucine if you're getting enough protein, and it's stupid to take the leucine and not get enough protein. And so you should just eat a lot of protein is where I think this is going. All right, thanks, Tiana, for your question. Doug Simpson says, are liver pills really as good as eating cooked liver? Some claim that 3,000 milligrams of grass-fed beef liver capsules are equivalent to one ounce of raw, undefatted beef liver. And then Pamela says, do the liver capsules lose vitamins with age, as I have heard? I do not know the answers to that. The way that I look at this is, um, is look, the liver pills are mainly for people who are not going to eat liver. So that's the first thing. The second thing is there are advantages to taking liver pills because, um, oh, one second, I need to plug in my computer. Sorry about that. There are, there, there are advantages to taking the, the dosing schedule of a little bit of liver every day. And the main advantage comes from vitamins that their absorption is limited. And so a great example of that would be B12. You can only absorb enough B12 in a single meal um, that is enough B12 for a day. And liver has more than that. And so you're getting way better B12 status if you consume a half an ounce or a quarter of an ounce of liver every day than if you consume um, you know, that, that same amount of liver once a week. And so probably the ideal thing would be to have fresh, like, you know, 20 gram, 20 gram, 10 to 20 grams of fresh liver every day. But the number of people who are going to do that are even smaller than the number of people who are going to eat the fresh liver, right? So what the liver pills do is, is number one, they give people who don't eat liver that frequently to get the, the nutrients that have absorption caps that are better off getting gotten in small doses at a time to get those every day. And it gives people who are not going to eat liver at all a way to get liver in. So I don't know. I mean, there's, it's a trade-off, right? Like there's uh, probably almost no one is going to eat 10 to 20 grams of liver every day. And so if you don't, are you better off taking the capsules or are you better off taking liver once a week? Nah, you're probably better off taking half and half, right? Like take, um, take three capsules every day and still eat liver once a week is probably the, the best thing to do in that case. Um, but what I don't know is I, I don't know if, they're, if they lose vitamins with age, but they probably lose a lot less vitamins than the liver 
fresh liver does with age. I mean, when you when you dehydrate something, everything is dramatically more stable. That doesn't mean it's totally stable, um, but it's a lot more stable than if you don't dehydrate it. But what is the, quantitatively, what is that stability? I do not know the answer to that. Um, and is it as good in every respect? I'm not sure. Uh, so I don't, re I don't recommend anyone who, who would otherwise eat liver stop eating liver and take the capsules. But I do recommend that people who won't eat liver take the capsules. And I think it's a, I think it's a nice thing to do if you eat liver to take the capsules anyway and take them at a lower dose because you eat liver. Like I said, take, you know, eat one serving of liver once a week or twice a month and take three or four of the capsules instead of six, two, two three, four of the capsules every day. And I think that's a happy medium that kind of, you know, best approximates the best thing, which is to eat 10, 10 to 20 grams of liver a day. Patty Beverlin says, how much vitamin C should be taken with a standard daily dose of collagen? Um, well, there's no evidence that you need to take vitamin C with collagen. There is a study by Keith Barr who showed that uh, 15 grams of gelatin, not collagen, but I suspect the collagen is exactly the same, 15 grams of gelatin, but not five grams, so the dose is important, with 50 milligrams of vitamin C taken before exercise, improved collagen synthesis in the tendons. So they included 50 milligrams of vitamin C because it's needed for collagen synthesis, but they didn't show that you needed the vitamin C. They just had the vitamin C in there. And so I don't know if it even matters in that context whether you need the vitamin C. And I also have no reason to think that you need 50 milligrams instead of 10 or that 100 milligrams wouldn't work better because they didn't test the different doses. They tested the different doses of gelatin. So I, I, I see no reason to think hydrolyzed collagen is any different in this respect. So let's assume that it's the same. What that means is I'm very confident that you need 15 grams instead of five grams when you take it before exercise to increase synthesis of collagen in the tendons, if that's what you care about. I have no confidence about how much vitamin C you need if you need any. But if you want to do what they did, then I do feel confident that 50 milligrams is enough to get some effect. I just don't know if it's enough to get maximal effect. And I don't know if it's necessary at all <laughs> or in that dose to get that effect. So if you're not taking it before exercise to benefit your joint health, then it just plain out doesn't matter at all. So get your vitamin C in anytime you need vitamin C, but you don't need to specifically match it to the collagen. If you're trying to increase collagen synthesis, in the context of, Pamela asked the author that study, the author is Keith Barr. I think there's two R's in his name, but I forget. And if you Google it, his name and gelatin will probably come up. If it doesn't, Google Danny Lennon's name in with it because Danny Lennon did an interview on it and it'll probably come up faster. Also, I did a Chris Master John Light episode on this so if you Google the topic and my name, you'll probably get that. And that probably has a link to the, the interview that Danny did with him. Um, okay, but look, here's the take home. So 
if it's for joint health and if it's taken before exercise, the timing is important because what you're trying to do is leverage the exercise to get more blood flow of the nutrients to the joints. That's why the timing matters. So in that case, um, you take the vitamin C with the collagen, 50 milligrams is the dose we know works. We don't know if it's, if you, it's necessary and we don't know if it's, if it's optimal. Uh, we just know that it works. If you're not taking it for joint health and you're not taking specifically before exercise, you still need vitamin C, but the timing doesn't matter and pairing it to the collagen doesn't matter. Thank you, Patty, for your question. Todd Becker says, I saw your interview with Joel Rosen. Very interesting. Nice to hear more about your background. Wonder if you can briefly share what you think caused your mom's fibromyalgia. Uh, I have no idea what caused my mom's fibromyalgia, although, and you know, I mean, fibromyalgia is, uh, it's not really a well-defined disease with a well-defined ideology. One of the risk factors is being very active and then not being active. And so I know in my mom's case, she was very active as a construction worker. And then there were some things that happened that wrecked the business um, that both led to her not being active anymore and also going through some events that caused PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so there's probably an element in that, but it's probably inter interacting with a genetic background. And my suspicion is I probably have the same genetic background or I have a mild, more likely I have a milder version of it because I have a lot of extreme muscle tightness that there are things that help with it. And it's not painful really, unless, unless I'm, I mean, it's painful in some cases if, if, for example, like if I go like this, it's very painful in the back of my neck and the muscles that I'm stretching. Or if I, you know, put my fingers, massage in here, it's extraordinarily tender. But, um, and there's things like that all over the place. But I don't really have pain. I have muscle tightness. And so there's probably some genetic element in there that is very similar to me. And it probably interacted with a, um, with a dramatic and abrupt change in physical activity and enormous acute stress with chronic layover effects is my guess. But I think that anything about what caused fibromyalgia is mostly guessing. But in terms of what helped her, it's hard to tease out all the variables, but she went on a macrobiotic diet, which is probably the opposite of what a lot of people in here would want to eat. Um, it's also the opposite of what a lot of people are eating to try to treat their fibromyalgia that uh, are not getting any benefit out of what they're doing. Um, it's hard to say cause and effect, right? And, you know, it's anecdote against anecdote probably isn't a good way to determine which diet is most effective. But for my mom, it was macrobiotic, um, very low, very low, very like zero sugar but also very high in carbohydrates and whole grains and stuff like that. Cookies that weren't cookies, 
I was a teenager at this time, so we had a lot of fights about the cookies. Um, but she was also doing yoga and Tai Chi and taking a lot of herbs. I mean, she basically immersed her in herself in a big exploration of healing modalities. And, uh, you know, I don't know that it reversed everything. She still has a lot of mobility restrictions and things like that, but she doesn't have the chronic pain that she used to have. Um, so, I, I mean, the amount of healing that happened was very dramatic. Thanks, Todd. Danielle Francis says, is folate um, also unstable in frozen liver? Does it just apply to greens? Marcus says, I made a CML about that. Yeah, I did make a CML about that. Uh, it's called, I don't remember what it's called. You can Google, you can Google Master John folate veggies liver frozen and it'll come up. Or you can go to chrismasterjohnphd.com slash methylation and it'll be in the list of methylation-related Chris Master John Light episodes at the bottom. Uh, but also, I talked about this already today in that long rant about liver, and the answer is folate is stable in frozen liver. It is not stable in frozen greens. Thank you, Danielle, for your question. Pamela Schoenfeld says, is there a potential for adverse effects for someone who supplements with five or 10 milligrams of folic acid or methylfolate based on a heterozygous MTHFR SNP? Is there a potential? <laughs> yeah. Um, the, upper, the tolerable upper intake level for folate was set at one milligram on the basis that there are rare hypersensitivity syndromes that, that have caused reactions to one milligram or higher, and on the basis that folate has been, in numerous case reports, supplementation of, of more folate than that has been the factor that appears to precipitate the neurological degeneration in B12 deficient patients. So it seems like if you're B12 deficient and you add a mega dose of folate, uh, there might be something causal about adding the folate precipitating the B12 deficiency. And that makes sense. You know, you like folate and B12 participate together in methylation. The neurological degeneration specific to B12 deficiency is, is probably mostly due to the non-methylation functions of B12. That's why it doesn't happen in folate deficiency. So if you add folate, you're going to probably redirect some of the B12 into the methylation pathway, rob it from the other pathway, which is metabolizing methylmalonic acid into the into this citric acid cycle. And you do that and you provoke the, the, the um, specific neurological degeneration of B12 deficiency. So, you know, but the, like the flip side of this is someone could say, well, there's no evidence that outside of these rare things that, that 50 milligrams of folate doesn't cause that causes harm. And that's true. There is no well-characterized harm from it. But I still think that it's 
that I'm, I mean, I'm, it's stupid. It's stupid. Why, why would someone with a heterozygous MTHFR SNP need 10 milligrams of folic acid or methylfolate? That makes no sense biochemically at, in, at all. It makes no sense. So first of all, are they, are they compound heterozygous or are they just heterozygous for the SNP? And, and um, Pam says they're overreacting, but I think, but it's hard to override an MD. Okay. So we're not overriding the MD. Uh, this is, uh, we're talking about this theoretically for the people who want to do things that make sense. So, okay. So first of all, they're heterozygous. Are they, does that mean they're compound heterozygous for both MTHFR SNPs? Because if they are, then that's meaningful. It's like a 50% um, drop in methylfolate production. If they're, if it's like, if they're heterozygous for the A1298C SNP, then that's like a, uh, you know, about 15-ish percent decrease in activity, which is very small. Um, and and uh, <laughs> it's very small and is probably not of much meaningful impact. But let's assume that it's a meaningful impact. I mean, let's, just, let's, let's assume that this person is the worst case scenario. They've got, um, so they're homozygous for C677T, Maybe they maybe they have a reduction in the folate transporter MTHFD one the other enzyme that precedes MTHFR. Like maybe there's a few things going on, and they're going to be their methylfolate levels are being going to be really decreased. So um, you know, for for people who don't know my view, go to chrismasterjohnphd.com/methylation where I have this all laid out. And uh, for people who do know my view, I I, I don't want to go into too lengthy of a rant because I know you know this, but but what is what's going on there? Well, you recycle a molecule of folate eighteen thousand times a day, and that means that if you if you have a seventy five percent decrease in that recycling, that means that you're missing out on thirteen thousand five hundred recycling events. Can you make up for that by consuming a higher dose of methylfolate? To do so would require that you consume 4.5 grams of methylfolate. When you do that, what happens? Well, you supply all the methyl groups, but guess what? Now you have 13,500 times more folate molecules than you would have had. So you've made up for the methyl groups, but you've done so by providing thousands of times more folate than you should have. What happens when you do that? I don't have a damn clue, but I'm not going to do it, and I'm not going to advise anyone else to do it. Um, and I think anyone else who does it is crazy. But beyond that, if that if it takes 4.5 grams of folate to do that, then what on earth are you going to achieve by taking 10 milligrams? So you're taking ridiculously excessive folate levels to achieve orders of magnitude less than what you would need to take if your theory about what to do about the SNP made any sense. In other words, it's impossible to fix an MTHFR SNP by taking extra folate. It makes zero sense to do that 
And 10 milligrams is both arguably unsafe from too much folate and orders of magnitude less than what you need to actually do what you think you're doing by taking it. So there is no context in which it is in any way rational to fix even a bad MTHFR situation with high-dose methylfolate. No sense. Meanwhile, what do we know from human trials that happens when you have MTHFR lowered? We know that it doubles your choline requirement to 900 to 1,200 milligrams a day. We have human studies on that. Do we have big ones? No. Do we have lots of them? No. We have two small human trials showing that it doubles your requirement for choline. Do we have any trials of using 10 milligrams of folate? No, right? So we have zero evidence, zero rationality backing up high-dose folate for MTHFR. Meanwhile, we have decent, small trials, number of two, not two people, two trials that are small that do something that makes tons of sense, makes perfect physiological sense. Those trials say, we double the need for choline. Why would you double the need for choline? Because if you're not as good at methylating with folate, what do you do? You methylate with choline because you are good at it, right? So it's like the biochemistry says you would do that. The human trial says that it happens. That's the only thing that has human trial evidence behind it to do for MTHFR. The only thing is to increase choline supplementation. The only thing. Even everything else I say to do is based on rational reasoning of the pathway and not on human trials. So choline is the one thing backed up by human trials. But what does rational reasoning about the pathway tell you? Well, it tells you that, number one, even if you supply choline as an alternative methyl donor, you're still going to have low methylfolate levels. And so you do want to get methylfolate into your system. Why? Because methylfolate doesn't just methylate. Meth you're fine with just methylating when you get enough choline. What you're not fine with is you don't have normal methylfolate levels. And why do you need methylfolate? Because it doesn't just methylate. Methylfolate is the off switch for the glycine buffer system. What's the glycine buffer system? The glycine buffer system is, the, is when you use glycine to get rid of extra methyl groups. The system is designed to use methylfolate as the off switch for that system when you don't have enough methyl groups. And that means that if you can't make methylfolate, you don't have that off switch, which means that even when you don't have enough methyl groups, you will still lose them by methylating glycine. That causes you to lose methyl groups and that causes you to lose glycine. And so you want to put some methylfolate in there and you want to keep it there. How do you keep the First of all, how do you make sure it's there all the time? You spread out your methylfolate evenly across all meals. Second of all, how do you make sure that you don't use it up real quickly and, and get rid of it since you don't have a way to keep it there by recycling it? Number one, you supply the alternative methyl donor. If you double the choline, like the studies say you do, not only do you not waste choline, but you make sure that you have a constant influx of methyl groups so you don't have to use the methylfolate. Number two, you reduce your methylation need. 
the best way to do that is to take creatine because 45% of your methylation is to make creatine. If you take creatine, you have the potential to cut your methylation demand almost in half. The other thing that you do is you say, well, okay, I am conserving my methylfolate. I'm putting methylfolate in. I'm conserving it by supplying the alternative methyl donor. I'm conserving it by reducing my demand for methylation, but I still might not have enough methylfolate there. And so I will lose glycine as a result of that. So you replace the lost glycine. Those are the things that make rational sense based on everything known about the biochemistry. And when I say known about the biochemistry, I'm not saying known about what enzymes exist and what they do, which is the level at which a lot of people reason with. So actually, this is a great point. You cannot reason about the biochemistry just, look at me put my glasses on like this helps me uh, speak more powerfully. <laughs> you, you, cannot, you cannot reason about biochemical pathways just knowing what the enzymes are and what they do. You have to take into account the kinetics, which, is, which means how much of something happens relative to another thing, and what are the contextual factors that change those calculations. And we have very good mathematical analyses of the kinetics of the interactions of all the enzymes in the methylation pathway. And so someone can say, Take methyl, take methylfolate so that you can methylate your genes to silence certain things from expressing. And they're wrong. Why? Because the kinetics of the methylation pathway say that within the context of normal physiology, the supply of methyl groups has no effect on DNA methylation. And so DNA methylation is irrelevant except in extraordinary deficiency or, or excess states because of the kinetics of that enzyme, because of the math involved. Right? And so it makes rational sense when you ignore the math to say, oh, yeah, let, like we don't have enough methylfolate. Let's just pound methylfolate in the pathway. It's the math, right? It's the math of the biochemistry. It's how many times do you need to add a methyl group to that folate molecule in a day? And does it make any sense to take 10 milligrams? It's the math that tells you that makes zero sense, right? And so, um, there was Bill Lagakos tweeted once, and I don't know if he's the origin of this saying or if he was quoting someone else. He, he tweeted once, biochemistry is what can happen. Nutrition is what does happen. And I wouldn't put it exactly like that, but the point that he's making, I endorse, which is if you just look at the biochemical pathway in a textbook or in a paper that's just showing you the enzymes and what they do, that doesn't tell you jack about how it works because, um, because not all those things are, you know, not all those things are altered in the way you would expect when you're deficient in something. You have to take into the, into the account, how are things prioritized? How does the supply of one thing mathematically affect the other, right? And so when you take into account the math, the rational explanation of, of what you need with MTHFR is what I just said, double the choline, uh, double the choline, take creatine if needed to decrease the methylation demand. By the way, I neglected to mention the, the, the newest thing I added, which is make sure to get the riboflavin to reverse the effects of the polymorphism. Um, but assuming that the riboflavin is not fully effective at reversing them, it's double the choline, take the creatine if needed to, to decrease the, the dependence on the pathway, spread out the methylfolate across the, uh, the day, and then make up for any lost glycine. That's what the math said, says. So um, 
Look, I don't know if it's har- if it's harmful, but it's irrational to take high dose methylfolate for this purpose or high dose folic acid. It's irrational. It's on the basis that it's not effective, and it is five to ten times the Institute of Medicine's tolerable upper intake level. And so, you know, it's not that I know it will cause harm. It's just that it's way into the territory of what has the possibility of harm in some people. And so why, for no benefit, would you take yourself deep into the territory of possible harm? Uh, and end rant. <laughs> so Marcus, uh, oh, Marcus follows up. Yes, I really appreciate these extensive explanations. Pamela says, me too, this is fantastic. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to use an intuitive sense of when it would make sense to rant on the basis of the question at length, and it looks like it's working, so <laughs> thanks. Uh, Marcus says, I have high magnesium levels in blood, and okay, so we're, we're hitting up time, so let's, um, there's 16 unanswered questions. Let's not put any additional questions into the group, and I'll finish off by answering the rest of the questions. Marcus uh, Matthiasen says, I have high magnesium levels in blood and hair, but low RBC magnesium. I've read through the magnesium section in the cheat sheet, but I am uncertain about how to approach this issue. Worth mentioning that potassium is also low. I get sufficient amounts of magnesium and potassium from diet, according to chronometer. And I've been taking an additional 600 milligrams of magnesium in the form of glycinate slash malate leading up to the test. What do you think about this? So, okay, the magnesium in the blood and the hair is high. And so when you say blood, I'm assuming this is serum or plasma because the RBC magnesium is low. Um, I'm hoping that's not whole blood magnesium, in which case it would be hard to separate from the RBC magnesium, but I mean, even if it were whole blood, there if the RBC magnesium is is low and the blood magnesium is high, then that then the magnesium that's in the blood that's high is in the serum or plasma, not in the RBCs, obviously. So, look, that means that's clearly this means that you're deficient in magnesium transport. You're not deficient in magnesium. So the last thing that you should do is start blasting high-dose magnesium at that because not only is it not going to help, but it's going, you're, you're basically at two or three times the risk of harm from supplementing high-dose magnesium because the harm of high-dose magnesium comes when your serum levels go to double the upper limit of the reference range. So if your serum level is high and your RBC is low and you start blasting, I'm going to rant again. <laughs> so look, you did the right thing by using the cheat sheet to measure both the the RBC and the serum. What I've seen other people do in the past is only measure the RBC. And they do this on the basis that people say that the RBC is more sensitive to deficiency. That might be the case. But if you have a problem getting the magnesium into the cells and your serum is high, then that means that the problem is not First of all, the problem is not you're not taking enough magnesium. It's you're not getting into the cells. So there's a problem that you're not fixing. But the other problem is that if the, ser- if the magnesium can't get into the cells and it goes into the serum instead, then for every given amount of magnesium that comes into your diet, you're going to raise the serum more than you otherwise would because it's going into the serum instead of the cells. 
And when it crosses the threshold of twice the upper limit of the reference range, that's where you get into clinical hypermagnesemia that can cause hypocalcemia, can cause hypokalemia, can cause uh, palpitations, cardiac arrhythmia, slow heart rate, fast heart rate, a lot of things that can go wrong at that point. So you definitely don't want to fix this with high-dose magnesium supplementation. Um, you have enough magnesium and potassium from diet, and you've been taking 600, so 600 milligrams of magnesium is probably fine. But you want to keep your, so your, your first goal is keep serum magnesium far away from double the upper reference range. So if it's, if it's like 10% over the top of the reference range, the 600 milligrams of magnesium is fine. It's probably putting you in a better situation than you otherwise would be. Because if you took that out, probably your serum would be lower and your red blood cells would be even lower, right? So you, you, um, you don't, it's just slightly elevated. So you don't, um, you don't want to be anywhere near double the upper reference range. But if you're a tiny bit over the reference range and you can and you can bring your red blood cells up even a tiny bit through supplementation, then that is okay. What I'm talking about is if you look at the red blood cell level and you say it's not high enough, and so you up the 600 to 1,000 milligrams, and you say it's not high enough, and you up the 1,000 milligrams to 1,500, you say it's not high enough, you add up the 1,500 to 2,000. Tob asks hypercalcemia. No, I said high magnesium can cause hypocalcemia, low, low serum calcium. Um, but anyway, so, so the magnesium supplementation is fine as long as it's not bringing you anywhere near top the upper reference range. But then you want to work on things that affect magnesium transport. Chief among those are salt. So your potassium is fine. What about your sodium? Salt is number one. Uh, vitamin B6 is number two. I have no idea why high-dose B6 increases red blood cell magnesium transport, but it does. I'll have to look into that further. In the meantime, all I can say is that there's studies showing, I think they were using 100 milligrams of P5P, if I remember right. Um, yeah, but Marcus, Marcus says my B6 status is sufficient, but Marcus, I don't know why... Um, B6 does what it does. So that doesn't mean that 100 milligrams of P5P isn't going to increase your magnesium transport. I just, I don't know the mechanism. So, so I, I wouldn't rule it out. So salt, B6, and insulin. So if you're not insulin sensitive, you need to work on that. If you are low carb, carbs might help. Uh, B6, even if it's adequate, maybe try 10 milligrams, work your way slowly up to 100 milligrams of P5P. See if that helps. If it doesn't, you probably have a more serious issue with magnesium transport. You might have a rare genetic defect in a magnesium transporter. Um, off the top of my head, I'm not sure how to manage that. There's probably things you can't do. And it might come down to just maximizing all the different possible ways that you can get magnesium into your system and cells. And that might mean that you, wanna, that you want a modest hypermagnesemia. In other words, that you want your serum magnesium to be a little into the, into the upper, uh, a little over the top of the upper reference range in order to try to drive magnesium into the red blood cells. But you still need to re measure it regularly so that you know that you're not anywhere near twice the top of the upper reference range. And... And then just do, you know, do what you can to maximize the other factors, insulin, 
salt and B6 is, uh, is, is what I think there. So thank you, Marcus, for your question. Doug says, any recommendations on increasing DHEA in terms of supplements? Is 7Q to DHEA or DHEA best? I'm sorry, Doug, I really can't um, answer your question right now, but actually um, I, I will probably have Dr. Kerry Jones, the medical director of the Dutch test on to talk about, uh, do and ask us anything about hormones sometime soon. So that might be a better time to ask that question. Pamela says, oh, that was a follow-up to something. Are thyroid nodules similar to goiter in some cases? Uh, good question. I feel like I would need to do research to answer that, but probably. Um, I, I would guess that there is probably a similar physiological background there with you know, overproduction of tissue. Um, but I, I'm not in a position to give a good answer about that right now. Pamela asks, I see this with the removal of dairy from people's diets as they think it is bad for them and do not want to supplement with calcium. This was a, oh, that was a follow-up to a previous one. Marcus says, I'm supplementing beta-alanine OCH citrulline malate for sports performance, but my arginine citrulline beta alanine is high on my Genova ion profile. Do you think this is a concern? Should I stop taking these? Um, no. Uh, no, that's just a result of taking those supplements, and I would not view it as a problem. You got, you got to realize that these normal ranges on these tests are most of the time, most of the time, most normal ranges are not optimal health ranges. They're, the, they're, they're based on the population of apparently healthy people. They take the mean and two standard deviations above and below the mean. So if you are supplementing with the, the things that you're looking on at that test, suddenly you're not in that population anymore. You're in the population of supplementers. And what you really want is, is a normal range based on the supplementers. Although, in an ideal world, we wouldn't have any normal ranges. We wouldn't use any normal ranges. We would just know what ranges of what mean what physiologically and use that to discriminate between optimal and non-optimal in order to promote health and disease, which is not what a normal range does. The idea of a normal range is to say, we don't know what's optimal. We don't know how to use this in a diagnostic way. But we know that if you're leading a, a normal lifestyle, normal foods, and you belong to the population that we sampled the statistics on, and that you're two, standards of devi two standard deviations away from the mean or more, then that is a red flag that there's something about that thing that is wrong in you. And that can make us more, if we just make normal ranges for everything, then suddenly we can start drawing correlations. What's wrong with the people whose um, who's this or that is out of range? What does that correlate with? What does it probably mean? And, and work on it that way. Sometimes we have good information. Like we know X amount of blood glucose leads to a coma and death. 
X amount of blood glucose put to you in the hospital, X amount of blood glucose put, you know, we know that for certain things, but with most of the stuff on the ion panel, that's just normal ranges. Todd Becker says, can you please explain again about polyphenols and hormesis? Again, as a toxin, how this affects glutathione levels. I could not keep up, and I think this may be important. Uh, yeah, so anyone who wants the details on this can go to chrismasterjohnphd.com slash antioxidant, where I have a whole course on the antioxidant system. That course, the videos are, are free, and... If you want the uh, premium features like transcripts, keyword searchable videos, and other learning tools, it's you can sign up with Masterclass with Master John. But um, you know, for anyone who just wants to know this particular topic in detail, go to the free version at chrismasterjohnphd.com/antioxidants. Scroll down to the episode. Just keyword search the page for polyphenols, and the lesson will come up. In brief, um, in brief, our detoxification system is not. It didn't evolve to handle the toxins of modern society. Modern society, we invent a new chemical. Our body knows it's a toxin, but it doesn't, it doesn't know it because we were exposed to it for millions of years. It knows it because it has similarity to other toxins. And that similarity may be weaker or stronger, depending on the toxin. Our bodies didn't evolve to be bad at detoxifying. They evolved to be they evolved to be good at detoxifying. And so our system is not designed to get sick when we encounter toxins. It's designed to get healthy when we encounter toxins. So the way that works is throughout most of our evolutionary history, the toxins we were exposed to were the toxins in plants. Most of them are polyphenols. Most of them are the things that we ascribe health benefits to. A lot of those health benefits come from the fact that these are the toxins that our bodies are designed to work with. So our bodies said, I get a daily, I get daily blasted with milligram amounts of, you know, or thousand milligrams, maybe grams in some cases, of these plant toxins. So what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to have an extraordinarily complex system that will... Now, getting rid of them is very energy intensive. So I don't want to have this system running in high gear all the time. What I'm going to do is I'm going to estimate my exposure to toxins by the amount of toxins that come into my system. And I'm going to use that as a metric of how much of the extraordinary energy it takes to get rid of toxins should I invest in maintaining a robust expression of the detoxification machinery and the antioxidant protection machinery, and the glycation defense machinery. And so these xenobiotic defense, uh, xenobiotic is something foreign. These, the, this defense system is this giant umbrella system that's a, that just at a very general level assesses the likelihood of how much, how much energy should we invest in keeping that system running based on how much toxins are we exposed to and uses that metric to invest the energy in that entire machinery. It's, so we're not, we're not investing in getting rid of a specific toxin. We're just taking the collective toxin and investing in the collective detoxification machinery, the, the collective antioxidant glycation defense machinery. And 
because fruit and vegetable polyphenols were the major toxins, our system is designed to be very highly responsive to them, to use them as that metric. Now, in the modern society, what do we do? We invented new toxins. These have the same harms. Oh, by the way, the fruit and vegetable polyphenols, what happens if you just take a bunch of them and you dump them on cells? You kill the cells, right? So what happens when we eat them? 99% of them don't get absorbed. Why? Because the intestinal cells have a detoxification pathway that's just like the livers. By the way, the liver, never call the liver a filter. And if you do call the liver a filter, you got to call the intestinal cells a filter for certain. They're not a filter. They're pumping out the toxins, right? So the intestinal cells got the same, the same response as the liver. 99% of the stuff doesn't get absorbed. It goes into your feces. The 1% that gets absorbed gets detoxified by the intestinal cell or makes it to the liver. Whatever makes it to the liver, most of that gets detoxified. You, look, you drink a cup of green tea. What do you see in your blood? You don't see... Uh, you don't see epicatechin, epicatechin gallate, epic, uh, epigallocatechin, epigall, sorry, no one knows what these terms are. You don't see EC, ECG, EGC, and EGCG. You see the methylated and otherwise detoxified metabolites of those compounds circulating. Why? Because you absorb 1% of it. Whatever made it to your liver got detoxified. What you see is the detoxification metabolites of those and within 20 hours, they're all gone from your system because your whole goal in life is to get rid of it. Okay, now modern society invents new modern toxins. What do those do? Well, in theory, we do the same thing to them. The difference is we don't have millions of years of exposure to them to optimize our sensors to those. So they become more toxic. Why? Because they come in and have the same toxic potential, but our system is bad at recognizing them. So they cause more toxicity than they cause upregulation of defense. But because we have millions of years of exposure to fruit and vegetable toxins, they cause more defense than they cause toxicity. Because we are, because our tuning forks, our sensors are optimized for them. And so let's say you have modern toxins that we invented that you're not very responsive to, and you have fruit and vegetable toxins that you're highly responsive to. What do you want to do? You want to increase the fruit and vegetable toxins so that you can make, so that you can have a better upregulation of the, of the machinery. But because the machinery is generic and is umbrella machinery that detoxifies everything, you can eat the fruit and vegetable toxins to get that response, and you can get use that response to detoxify the modern toxins that we're not as good at detecting. So the principle of hormesis is a, a little bit of something bad is good for you. That means a little bit of bad things in fruits and vegetables is good for you because it upregulates the detoxification machinery and helps you not just get rid of those that you ate, but it helps you get rid of the, all the other bad stuff. It helps you protect your wear and tear of, of your tissues caused by things that are going on in your body. Like you have diabetes and you make more glycation end products. It helps you defend against that too because it's general defense. And so you probably do want to eat five to nine servings of fruits and vegetables a day. But do you want to take the EGCG out of the green tea and highly concentrate it into a pill and then take 100 times more EGCG than you could ever get from drinking 
two to three cups of green tea and eating and you know in the collective with the other fruits and vegetables you're eating, well, that's where you get into the fact that at something, at some threshold, something that's bad for you is always bad for you, regardless of the principle of hormesis. And so you might have, now take this guy, uh, the, the person, I, I forget who it was at the beginning who asked the question where we said they probably have a, a defective glutathione synthetase gene. Um, this was... Was it, this was Brad. Brad, we decided, had um, possible defective glutathione synthetase gene. Well, he might be more harmed by like the dose of uh, like let's uh, so there's case reports that EGCG causes liver failure. Usually, it's high doses. Maybe there was misformulations in the supplements. There's a lot of questions. People have increased vulnerability. Why might you have increased vulnerability? Well, let's take Brad, who we're thinking maybe has a glutathione synthetase uh, impairment. He upregulates the machinery, but he can't upregulate the glutathione. And so even at the healthy hormetic dose of something, he might be upregulating glutathione synthesis, but he doesn't get the glutathione because he has an impairment in that, in glutathione synthesis. And so now even the upregulation from the fruits and vegetable polyphenols isn't even enough to deal with the toxicity of the fruit and vegetable polyphenols because, that, because the, they caused you to engage in a defense that you're not able to engage in. So it's not, it's not the case for you that eating those helps you defend against everything else. It's the case for you that you can't even defend against those when you eat them. But that's rare. What's common is that for everyone, there's going to be a threshold where, where you're just maxing out your defenses and you're crossing the border into just outright toxicity. And so there's going to be a point for everyone at which the fruit and vegetable toxins are just toxic. So that point for the average person is not five to nine a day. We know that because people eating five to nine a day wouldn't, ha wouldn't have better health outcomes if that were the case. People going on a whole foods plant-based diet would be killing themselves. And, you know, there, there are some respects in which they might be giving themselves problems, but they're not getting liver failure from eating a lot of fruits and vegetables. So I think where you cross the line is you, what you don't want to do is isolate those things into a pill and mega dose them. And that's why people, when they ask me about sulforaphane and, and milk thistle, my view of that is that that's what you do when you can't eat a lot, a high volume of unrefined plant foods with a five to nine approach to fruits and vegetables. But what you don't want to do is say, well, if, if the bottle says one capsule of milk thistle a day is good for me, then um, 10 capsules of milk thistle on top of 10 servings of fruits and vegetables is good for me then you're in the zone of who knows what that's doing to you. All right, I hope that helped, Todd. Jennifer Dunlap says, in my mid-30s while nursing my toddler, 
Shayson says, not a rush. Uh, I'll, well, I'll see what I can do, Jen. Uh, Jennifer says, in my mid-30s while nursing my toddler, I have not got back the energy I had while nursing previous children, and my muscles feel fatigued much of the time in spite of sufficient protein, calories, multivitamin, collagen, CoQ10. After listening to the creatine podcast, I began supplementing five grams per day. This has lessened the feeling of fatigue so that I can enjoy working out again. It also apparently caused immediate ovulation symptoms after 18 months of nursing amenorrhea. There's virtually no research on creatine while nursing, which is why I chose a maintenance rather than loading dose. The toddler is 25 pounds and healthy. Um, so your question is, is your question, is it safe to take the creatine while nursing? Um, if, if, the, if it, if it is reply in there. Okay. Here, my, here's what I think. So, um, number one, that's, I mean, this sounds fantastic. Um, so, well, so, so Jen, is the ovulation a problem because you're trying to use the nursing as birth control or is the ovulation a sign to you that you're improving your health given the, let's see, what'd you say here? No, oh, nursing amenorrhea. Uh, like, is it a bath? So I guess that's kind of a, um, no, 18 months is plenty of amenorrhea. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, there's there's bound to be some people who are like, "Damn, I wanted, I wanted uh, automatic birth control." <laughs> um, so my so my my impression here is, if you felt fatigued and you took the creatine and all of a sudden that started reversing, then you either felt fatigued because you had low creatine synthesis, or you felt fatigued because you had a methylation problem. And those aren't mutually exclusive. You, if you're not methylating well, the most sensitive thing that will happen is you'll synthesize less creatine. But I mean, it could have gone beyond creatine. Like it could have been that you're synthesizing less creatine and you're not regulating your dopamine properly and things like that. Um, but certainly you're addressing a methylation issue slash a creatine deficiency issue. And it... I don't know the exact cause and effect scenario that would lead to ovulation, but it makes sense that you ovulate. I mean, so think, I mean, think about the regulation of fertility. The whole thought process of the body's regulation of fertility, all of it comes down to energy. It comes down to the fact that when you get pregnant, you're investing, um, I don't remember what the numbers are off the top of my head, something like 50,000 kilocalories in a pregnancy. And then you, and then in lactation, you're investing another, I think, thousand kilocalories a day or something like that. And, um, and so the whole, the whole, uh, hypothalamic regulation of sex hormones and thyroid hormone is all regulated by leptin and insulin as signals of long-term and short-term energy status. And, um, at the cellular level, you, so insulin and leptin are hormones. Endocrine hormones are between tissues. But what happens at the cellular level is I think it's very plausible that something that's happening at the cellular level and the recognition of what those hormones mean to, cum to, to communicate that energy is present, sufficient for fertility, is going to be ATP dependent. And if you're missing creatine, then you're going to have a drop in the power of the ATP signal and the recycling of the ATP. This is the basis for why creatine 
is used for muscular power, but it's also the basis for why creatine is used to use energy in producing stomach acid or to communicate um, or to transmit light and dark signals through your eye to your brain to make vision. Uh, you know, all over the place, creatine is super important to the cellular utilization of energy. Um, so my guess is it's correcting a response inside the cell to the leptin and insulin. And, you know, probably the... Um, probably the, <clears throat> I mean, 18 months is like, maybe your body just decided, well, I'm done with it. Uh, or maybe your nursing frequency was declining at that point. Um, and it was just a, a balance, right. Where what, you know, what nursing is saying is I just got done spending all that energy and I need time to recover that energy. And so you're, it's, a, it's a balance, right? Your body's kind of playing it like, well, the last time I inve invested a uh, 100,000 calorie net in kilocalorie net investment was six months ago. And my body fat is X percent and my calories and carbs coming in are Y. And if I make this equation, what's the likelihood that if I get pregnant now, I'm going to have enough energy to do this again, right? And so the distance from pregnancy judged by the, the suckling response is going to be part of that equation, but so is the leptin and insulin, and so is the intracellular response to the leptin and insulin. I think what the creatine is doing is fixing the intracellular response. In, in terms of safety in breastfeeding, there's... No, I don't think there's any evidence one way or another. It's probably safe because you can get this from meat um, and there's no evidence of harm. Uh, but if you wanted to be hyper careful, I'm not saying you need to do this, but if you wanted to be like super, super careful, what I would do is divide the, cre the five grams over, um, over three or four meals evenly on the basis that there are very, very trace amounts of byproducts of high-dose creatine. I mean, like a supra, five grams. Like five grams will cause extraordinarily tiny amounts of toxins that appear in the urine. I mean, not toxins at the level that we're talking about, but uh, I, I doubt it's a risk. But if you wanted to be hyper-careful, divide the dose up evenly. All right, thank you, Jennifer, for your question. Uh, oh, she follows up. I I nearly weaned a couple of months ago, not ovulated, and then went back to nursing heavily and started creatine, then ovulated. Yeah, so I mean, the going back and forth is going to play a role in that as well. I don't know the, all the details of how it's of how it works, but you know, you're when you go off, there's something about the imprinting of the off response that feeds into the mathematical calculation that your cells are doing, I would guess. Um, but yeah, the, the creatine, I mean, you went back and you added the creatine, so it does, it, it's, um, I suspect that that stop that weaning down played a role in potentiating the response of the creatine, but clearly going back to the breastfeeding, 
um, and adding the creatine. Clearly, the creatine is doing something there because otherwise, um, you know, if it was just the, if it was just a weaning, you would have started back when you weaned. So, Tom Becker, uh, no, I just got that one. Pamela Schoenfield says oh, that's a uh, follow up. Jennifer Dunlap says thanks. That was really helpful. Um, oh, that was also a follow up. Also a follow up. Marcus Matthiason says I am currently. Currently taking one capsule of gerotocosorb, but my vitamin E levels are only in the second and first quintile on my Genova ion profile. Should I increase the dose or try another supplement instead? If, you, if so, do you think, and he gives a link, that this is a viable alternative? I'm skeptical about high doses of vitamin E because I have a GSTP1 polymorphism, which advises against vitamin E supplementation. Worth mentioning that lipid peroxides are in the second quintile, so it doesn't seem to be an issue. And maybe my vitamin E levels only appear to be low because of my lipid profile. Uh, your lipid profile... What's wrong with your lipid profile? Marcus, can you add what, what do you mean by your lipid profile? What's altered about your lipid profile? Uh, nothing wrong. It's just low normal. Yeah. Uh, yes, it could be because of that. And you, the thing is, I don't know what the range is, but you, sh it, but when you have hyperlipidemias or hyperlipidemias, you have to, you have to adjust the vitamin E level to the lipid, to either cholesterol or triglycerides to normalize it. Um, and I don't have any formulas to do that off the top of my head. It's not in the Genova report. And so the question is like mathematically, how should you tackle that? Well, the first thing is you're low normal. And so you might not, like a lot of people would look at this and just say, well, you're not actually out of the range. So why bother doing the calculation? Um, but, you know, if you really want to be sure, my... My instinct, is a, my instinct is to say if your second or first quintile on both, then you don't even need to do the math. It's just clear that your lipid levels are proportionally impacting your vitamin E levels. Vitamin E is carried by lipoproteins. But if you want to do the math, then I would take your triglycerides or cholesterol and for lack of an of a, uh, actual way to do this, if you want to just kind of like get a, get a guesstimate, um, take them and divide them by the, uh, see how far percent in, you are into the range. Um, and so like take the top of the range, subtract the bottom of the range. That's the distance across the range. And then take your result, subtract the bottom of the range. That's how far into the range you are. Divide that number by the, by the first one to get the percentage of the range that you're into. Do that for both of those and then normalize it to each. In other words, if I'm um, if I'm twenty percent into the range on vitamin E, and I'm twenty percent my microphone things keeps dropping. If I'm twenty percent of the range, twenty percent into each range, then you divide twenty percent by twenty percent. One point oh is you're right in the middle. If you're 
50% into one range and you're 20% into the other, you divide one by the other and you're, um, you're 40% above the mean, for example, uh, in, the, in that calculation. And I would use that to, to say, basically what you're doing is you're replacing your view of how, what quintile you are on their report with how, what quintile you are normalized for your blood lipids. So if you are in the first quintile in their report, but you are at 60% in the way I just said, then you're really at 60%, if that makes sense. All right, thanks, Marcus, for your question. Jennifer Dunlap says, okay, I'm insulin sensitive, but manage it with food. Uh, oh, this was a, a follow-up to another question. Last question of the day, Pamela Schoenfeld, Pamela Schoenfeld says, have you seen any evidence that very low LDL levels, 50 or so, are associated with female infertility? Um, I haven't seen evidence of it, but that would not surprise me at all, given that cholesterol is what you make sex hormones from. So I would, I mean, if you see levels that low, I don't know that it's intrinsically a problem, but it's, I mean, you kind of want to start looking at, well, like what are the reasonable things you could expect to happen from that that affect female fertility? Fat soluble vitamins could be relevant. Sex hormones could be relevant. I'd start looking at those things. I doubt that the LDL being that low itself, in and of itself, is going to be the thing that compromises fertility. But I, and this is the thing, like is the LDL low because of really good clearance from the blood or is it low because of really low production? If it's low because of really low production, then you're, you're definitely gonna have problems with fat-soluble vitamin transport because if the liver is not making lipoproteins as much, the fat-soluble vitamins are staying trapped in the liver and they're not getting to other tissues that need them. Um, you know, it's, with, uh, with the sex hormones, it's possible but less likely an issue in the sense that, well, actually, I take that back. With the sex hormones, it's going to be more relevant whether the, whether the tissues themselves are synthesizing enough cholesterol because <clears throat> the liver does not play a major role, contrary to a very popular belief. The liver does not play a major role in providing cholesterol to other tissues, plays a minor role in doing that. <clears throat> and it, it provides a major role in regulating the clearance of lipids from the blood. And that's how it controls cholesterol levels. And that's why you target statins to the liver. But it doesn't produce cholesterol for the rest of the body for the most part. <clears throat> so because the, <clears throat> because the gonads and the adrenal glands make their own cholesterol, largely, um, the real question is, is this an indicator of deficient cholesterol synthesis? So for example, if someone's, if, like this person might be a carrier, so let's consider two possibilities. Possibility one is this person has a defect in PCSK9. Uh, what they do for them, they will save massive amounts of money versus taking a PCSK9 inhibitor because they have their own genetic PCSK9 inhibitor. PCSK9 inhibitors are going to come out to be the next line of defense after statins for heart disease, and they cost... Um, obscene amounts of money. So, um, so this person gets a free one, right? 
And because what that does is it increases the clearance of cholesterol from the blood, <clears throat> that's probably not going to, to lower the cholesterol level in the adrenal glands or the gonads. But on the other hand, let's imagine that this person is a carrier for smith lumley oppitt syndrome. How likely is that? Fairly likely, one to 3%, depending on the population, carry that. Does anyone care? No. Why? Because only one in 60,000 live births have smith lumley oppitt syndrome. And that's because if one of those carriers gets matched to another carrier, then they are, you know, they have a certain percentage likelihood of one of their babies having both genes. And the overwhelming likelihood is that that baby dies in utero and becomes a miscarriage and is never born. And so no one pays any attention to the carriers, except uh, hopefully genetic counselors um, do in terms of matching people or, or warning people about genetic defects when they match. Um, but uh, but like clinically, no one cares about that because it's they have low cholesterol levels. So why would you care? That's great. They won't get heart disease. But um, But if that's the case then the reason their cholesterol levels are low is because cholesterol level synthesis in the liver is low. And the liver clears more, blood li more lipids from the blood because it's deficient in synthesis. Well, what else is deficient in synthesis? Everything else is deficient in cholesterol synthesis. So in that case, you would expect the, the sex hormones to be affected, the adrenal hormones to be affected because the cholesterol synthesis in those glands is lower. And it... There, and there, while there's no evidence for it, it makes perfect sense that dietary cholesterol would help that because dietary cholesterol is very helpful in smith lumley oppitt syndrome, where the exact same defect is 1,000x to produce a devastating result. So it makes total sense that in someone who is a carrier for SLLS, smith lumley oppitt syndrome, who has defective cholesterol synthesis in their gonadal tissues and therefore has defective sex hormone synthesis, it makes total sense that eating cholesterol would help those people. And so I would try it. Uh, but then again, it's, you know, it all comes down to, this is a good reason for a mini rant. So everyone always wants to take the concentration of something and make an inference of it. The concentration of something tells you nothing about what came in and what left. It's low. Could be because it didn't come in very fast. Could be because it left really fast. That's that makes PAMSA so egg yolks. Yeah, that's what most people are going to eat for cholesterol. Um, but you know, but but this all this all hinges on the question of the LDL is low. So what is it? Is it because it's being cleared rapidly, or because it's not being it's not entering the blood due to lack of synthesis? Um, and so it's whether, whether that person is going to have infertility as a result of it and whether that's going to be helped by dietary cholesterol is going to, all going to hinge on that. But the good news is uh, for both people, it's probably completely harmless to eat some eggs. Eating eggs might just be the thing that helps. All right. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, everyone. Uh, it was great doing another AMA. And um, Next one is Friday, so I'll see some of you and perhaps some people who weren't here in the next one. Thanks, guys.
This episode is brought to you by Ancestral Supplements. Traditional peoples, Native Americans, and early ancestral healers believe that eating the organs from a healthy animal would strengthen and support the health of the corresponding organ of the individual. For example, the traditional way of treating a person with a weak heart was to feed the person the heart of a healthy animal. Modern science makes sense of this. Heart is uniquely rich in coenzyme Q10, which supports heart health. The importance of eating organs, though, is much broader than simply matching the organ you eat to the organ you want to nourish. For example, natives of the Arctic had very limited access to plant foods and got their vitamin C from adrenal glands. Vitamin C is important to far more parts of your body than simply your adrenals. In his epic work, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, Weston Price recorded a story of natives who cured blindness using eyeballs, which are very rich in vitamin A. But now that we understand vitamin A, we know that we can get even more vitamin A by eating liver, making liver good for your eyes. Our ancestors made liberal use of organ meats both to be economical and to utilize their healing and nourishing properties. Animals in the wild do the same. Weston Price had also recorded a story of how the zoos in his era were capturing lions, tigers, and leopards, oh my, only to watch them become infertile in captivity. Researchers then observed what the lions did when they killed zebras in the wild. What they did was they went straight for the organs and bone marrow, leaving the muscle meat behind for the birds. But even the birds took what they could of the organs and bone marrow. Price reported that once the zookeepers started feeding the animals organ meats, boom, their fertility returned. The problem I often encounter, though, is that many people just don't like eating organ meats. Let's face it, if you weren't raised on them, it can be very hard to acquire a taste for them. That is where Ancestral comes in. Ancestral Supplements has a nose-to-tail product line of grass-fed liver, organ meats, living collagen, bone marrow, and more, all in the convenience of a gelatin capsule. For more information or to buy any of their products, go to ancestralsupplements.com. Ancestral Supplements, putting back in what the modern world has left out. This episode is brought to you by Ample. Ample is incredible. It's a meal in a bottle that takes a total of two minutes to prepare, consume, and clean up. Two minutes. I'm not kidding. Now, I know what you're thinking. Anything that quick just has to be made of synthetic ingredients that you'd have a hard time pronouncing and wouldn't want to put into your body. But it's not. Ample is made entirely from natural ingredients and designed to provide an optimal balance between protein, fat, and carbs, as well as all the vitamins and minerals that you'd need in a single meal. There's no question that it's always best to sit down and take your time eating a home-cooked meal from fresh ingredients. But let's face it, oftentimes we just don't have time for that. If you live a busy life like I do and your goal is to get things done, you need quality fuel that you can get into your system quickly. Here's a great example where Ample is perfect for me. When I shoot videos, it takes hours to set up and break down all of my equipment. So I try to get as many videos shot in a day as possible. This prevents wasting a lot of time on setup and helps me conserve big blocks of time outside of shooting videos to get into a flow state where I can research something to my heart's content and spend all the time I need thinking about it creatively and analytically. But if I spend hours dealing with recording equipment plus hours spent preparing food, eating it, and cleaning up, there's like 
no time left over to actually shoot any videos. So on recording days, I use Ample to maximize efficiency and focus on getting things done. Ample comes in three versions, original, keto, and vegan. And each version comes in two portion sizes, 400 calorie and 600 calorie. The 600 calorie original version gives me 37 grams of protein from a mix of grass-fed whey and collagen, which promotes satiety and flips my brain on. Its fat comes from coconut oil and macadamia nut oil. I like these oils because they're low in polyunsaturated fatty acids or PUFAs, oils that promote aging and are usually loaded into the processed foods that most people eat when they need something on the go. The coconut oil provides some medium chain fats to keep my energy levels up too. The carbs, the vitamins, and the minerals all come exclusively from food sources like sweet potatoes, bananas, cocoa powder, wheat, and barley grass, and chlorella. It's full of natural prebiotic fibers and probiotics to promote a healthy microbiome, and the gentle sweetness comes from a mix of honey, monk fruit, and stevia. I just mix it with water, drink it, rinse out the bottle, and boom, two minutes in, and I'm fully fueled and ready to face the next phase of the day. I first came across Ample when I met its founder and CEO, Connor Young, at PaleoFX a few years ago. Connor inspired me with his vision for Ample, which I anticipate will be much more than a meal in a bottle in the near future. I've become an official advisor to Ample, and I'll be helping Ample design scientific research that will lead both to an ever-improving Ample and, I hope, meaningful contributions to our understanding of how to use nutrition to help people be healthier and happier and perform better at the challenges that they care most about. As a listener to the Mastering Nutrition podcast, I've also worked out a special deal for you. If you use the discount code CHRIS15, you'll get 15% off your first order of Ample. To get your discount, go to amplemeal.com. That's amplemeal.com, A-M-P-L-E-M-E-A-L.com, amplemeal.com, and use the code CHRIS15 at checkout. Thank you so much for watching, everybody. If you would like to participate in the next Ask Me Anything, you can join the CMJ Masterpass at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash masterpass slash mastering nutrition. Using that URL or using the link in the description of this episode will get you a 10% lifetime discount off the program. You not only get to participate in regular Ask Me Anythings live over Zoom when you are a MasterPass member, but you also get transcripts of these episodes. You get them ad-free and you get them as they are produced instead of as they are released, often getting them weeks or months ahead of time. You can sign up again at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash masterpass slash mastering nutrition. Whether you're on the masterpass or not, you can always find me at chrismasterjohnphd.com and you can find me at chrismasterjohn on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. All right, I hope you found this useful. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. This has been Mastering Nutrition and I will see you in the next episode.